Greetings, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hells, or all seven kingdoms. Hey, since there's actually more than seven kingdoms, are there actually more than seven hells? Hmm. Hmm. Something for the Westerosi philosophers in the chat to consider. Thank you for all of you who support us on Patreon. Member Westorians get a variety of fun bonuses and other cool stuff. Uh, that means <laughs> a lot of fun stuff like uh, episodes early and including our scripts. Scripts, you can get scripts, including for Valar Reredis and uh, all of our scripted episodes in the past. And of course, our scripts with for Valar Reredis, that means, uh, well, lots of thoughts from me and of course joe buckley and a lot of our people in facebook and flick things like that but also we we actually write out most of it so most episode documents are around 30 pages so there's quite a bit in every script um most of this is written out ahead of time some of it's left in outline form it depends on um, how i think it needs to be done and a reminder, next week, we are back on a Monday schedule just for, uh, you, you know, occasionally we do Monday or a different day than Sunday. And next week will be one of those times. We The, the time is still TBA, but we will be at Ball on the Wall, Ball at the Wall in Nashville. So we have pushed it one day. So like I said, time TBA, we're thinking of doing something fun like a late stream, um, but we haven't nailed it down just yet. This time, this episode, three Tyrion chapters. Two brand chapters and one each from the Stark sisters. Ironically, it's the chat. It's the longest batch of chapters we're doing because we're doing seven this week, and it's the longest batch, of course, in terms of audiobook length and page length. But like I said, there's less variety in the POVs: three Tyrions, <laughs> two brands, one Sansa, one Arya. But that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just a thing. So let's talk about which ones we have this week and get going. Tyrion 3, the gang is accused of incest, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion starts the chain. Bran 2, the one where they hear about Ramsay, a.k.a. the gang meets Manderly. Tyrion 4, the gang gets tricked on marriage alliances, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion counts to three. Sansa 2, the one where Dantos sends a note, a.k.a. the gang drinks true wine. <laughs> Arya 5, the gang is captured by the mountain, a.k.a. the one where Lamy yields. Tyrion 5, the one where they argue about Marcella a.k.a. the gang prepares the wildfire. And Bran 3, the one with the harvest feast, a.k.a. the gang meets the reeds. Everybody uh, send some positive thoughts to Ashea, who to almost one year to the date of her falling down the stairs anniversary, fell down the stairs again. Yeah, just today, a couple yeah. hours ago. I'm an idiot. That is all. <laughs> so, um, yes, three. please send good vibes to Ashea's backside, which is very uh, sore and hurting right now you should send good vibes to my backside at all times <laughs> but sure <laughs> yes okay so let's do it Tyrion three the gang is accused of incest aka the one where Tyrion starts the chain it's the one where Tyrion really starts making moves as hand i mean he's been hand since the beginning of the book but this is where he really starts to operate and the first line of the chapter is quote the queen was not disposed to wait on Varys. As always, the opening line of, this, of the chapter gives us something immediately to talk about. And in this case, I would point out that Cersei's impatience hangs over 
many of Tyrion's A Class of Kings chapters. And as he says himself, she's more dangerous when she's composed, i.e. not in fear. He likes keeping her off balance because she's dangerous when she's not afraid. The thing is, she's afraid quite often. So, you know, it's not hard to make her paranoid. Uh, Fortunately, if you make her too paranoid, well, Tyrion, you're one of the ones she's paranoid about. So, you know, it's a fine line to walk. And in the council meeting, Littlefinger's line about how best to use rumor and lie is worth extra consideration. Quote, In my experience, the more bizarre and shocking a tale, the more apt it is to be repeated. So I want y'all to keep an eye out. Think about uh, other times in which Littlefinger may have done this, just exaggerated in order to make it more believable, which is, you know, that does seem kind of counterintuitive, but there are times when it's, it works. And of course, you got to think about who the audience is. And I don't mean us. I don't mean the readers. I mean the common people of Westeros. He points out how generally uneducated they are, talking about <clears throat> floppy ears and pregnancy and, and weird things like that. It's it's the kind of stuff that sounds ridiculous to us, but for Westerosi commoners who have had zero years of schooling and uh, there's no internet, you know, just got to keep all these things in mind, things that we take for granted. Uh, they don't have any of that. So they believe a lot of well, wrong things, and people like Littlefinger are well aware of it and capitalize on it. Made me think of Fire and Blood, of course. Yeah, very true. Yeah, George expands on that concept in Fire and Blood. Very true. But Pycelle makes yet another comment about not trusting Varus. He just, he just is a one, he just doesn't stop talking about how he doesn't trust Varus. Perhaps we should be counting how many times he says it. And I wonder how many of these Varus has overheard, because, of course, Varus is listening to so many conversations in the Red Keep and, well, in other places, too. I wonder if it was satisfying for Varus to kill Pycelle, be like, finally, I can shut this guy up. He's blaming, He blames everything on me. And, of course, we haven't gotten to peak Pycelle blaming Varus when, when next week, I believe it is, Pycelle, we have Tyrion 6, and Pycelle gets his beard shorn by uh, Shaga. And he's like, I was Varus. It was Varus. One of my favorite things <laughs> yeah. is Pycelle getting, getting his beard short. There's <laughs> yeah. actually a real life story about, was it Mormons? I forget. Um, do you remember that story about they had a, hmm. a bit of a feud with each other? And so a bunch of men went into the other camp. I don't think it was Mormons, but they went into the other camp. Um, of people like their compound oh was and, it it and, wasn't yeah it wasn't mormons it was um yeah what was it the Anyways. uh the, the quakers the quakers, right? the quakers and they, yeah. they cut off their beards which is like a, it's real... a huge affront no it's like terrible to, for them to do it but yeah anyways it makes me think of that yeah like in other circumstances that's like a, like a prank you would shave somebody while they're asleep but apparently for quakers that's a that's a huge insult. yeah it's a religious affront yeah it'd be like it would be like shaving like a, a sikh's beard or something like yeah. this well not like but yeah. Whereas getting, she- you know, shearing off T- Pycelle's beard makes him look all the more ridiculous. Yeah, it's just mean. <laughs> That's just, there's no religion behind this one. No culture, just just being mean. Uh, but also, it's not like Pycelle didn't kind of deserve it. <laughs> but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Tyrion, as hand, with most of his time spent at King's Landing, makes for a very strong parallel to Ned. Both of them had 15 chapters, and both of them spent most of that time being hand in King's Landing. And that's easily the most chapters for POV in either book. But while many of the same characters are part of the story, the the supporting cast in King's Landing, Small Council, Cersei, Joffrey, all these other things, the challenges they face are different, and their personalities are very different. Of course, their loyalties are very different as well. 
bottom line, Tyrion is just better at it. He's more skilled. It doesn't mean he's more moral, of course. That's an entirely different conversation. He's just smarter about politics. He's, he understands people better than uh, Ned does. And if you want to think about it another way, if you, if you kind of follow Ned's arc, he's led from place to place by Robert's whims and Varus and Littlefinger's schemes. He's constantly chasing after what other people are doing. He's reacting. Whereas Tyrion is leading. He is making other people are reacting to him. Cersei is reacting to his moves. He is kind of running things, whereas Ned was being run, I think. Um, also, you know, uh, Tyrion's in better shape because he doesn't have as many people coming for him. He has a lot more, even though he's <laughs> got a lot of people who don't like him and working against him, uh, he's got more men. <laughs> he's got more protection, in other words. And he's got the uh, approval of Tywin Lannister, unlike Ned, who is, uh, you know, kind of operating on the approval of Robert. And Robert, despite being king, was pretty weak politically in his own his own kingdom. It's almost like Tyrion read Ned's chapter. She's like, okay, here's what not to do. First thing, have a bunch of tough guys around you at all times, which Ned did not. He kept sending his men away, in fact. He kept weakening himself and making himself more exposed. And we already saw this in, in the beginning of Tyrion's arc, Tyrion too, when it, with, it, with his challenge to Mandon Moore. If he had just walked in with his letter and said, hey, look, this is a letter from my dad, you gotta let me in, and Mandon said no, what's Tyrion gonna do? He might get Mandon, uh, you know, talked to later you might get him slightly punished for that later but in the in the moment he misses that council meeting and his authority is damaged but because he had shaga and Braun, or i guess it was timid and Braun with him and was able to make a threat then mandon had to let him pass so it's, it's interesting how these small scale uh could be violence interactions like actually have a big impact on basic politics like sir Tyrion wouldn't have been in the room without his guards now here in this chapter, he starts a defense project and his next chapter, he starts to test the key members of the small council while making a marriage alliance uh, compared to what Ned was doing, like, you know, sending out men to get ambushed and <laughs> uh, reacting to Tywin's destroying the Riverlands and, and picking up all of Robert's messes. So it's uh, very different, even though it's also very similar. So some minor synchronicity here. Tyrion starts the construction of the chain. It's also the first chapter where he wears his hands chain. Tyrion wonders out loud to Varys if he told Stannis about the incest. Varys denies it. Then Tyrion tries to get Varys to say it was Littlefinger who tells Stannis about the incest. But we know that really can't be. One of the reasons Littlefinger and Varys seem to sort of leave each other alone or even seem to work together on occasion is, at least in these chapters, later that's less true. But uh, and before it's true a little bit, but it's for all for the same reason, basically, which is that neither of them want Stannis on the throne. And that's a big uh, possibility hanging over either of them. Neither of them want that. Varys, for obviously has his own candidate in mind for the throne, doesn't want a strong military presence in charge, someone that would actually be effective. He would much rather have Robert, Cersei or someone like that in charge. Uh, and he hates magic. So, you know, that's another reason he's not going to be too keen on Stannis, who is uh, backed by Melisandre and her shadow babies and all that. Now, Littlefinger has his reasons, too. One of them being that he doesn't want all his brothels closed, you know. Also, 
Stannis is not going to let him create chaos and do. He's just not a good candidate for Littlefinger style. Uh, Stannis would be hard for a lot of those guys to deal with, which is one of the reasons people like Stannis that he would sh- clamp down on Littlefingering and Barrising Littlefingering. <laughs> now, thanks to the law of conservation of brothels on the show, it seemed that Littlefinger just owned all of them it wasn't entirely clear but it just felt like anytime there was a brothel it was owned by Littlefinger uh and in but in King's Landing in A Song of Ice and Fire that's a different thing Shataya's for example is owned by Shataya and it continues to come up Tyrion follows in Ned's footsteps again by having it be a part of his story as hand didn't it feel like I, I don't know if, I feel like they were not multiple brothels though in the show I felt like it was always just Littlefinger's brothel. You know, you might clear. be right, yeah. I don't think it's that he, he owned multiple brothels. I just think it was his. They may have mentioned that he owned other ones, Maybe. and he just didn't, you didn't, we didn't see them. Yeah, but, uh, Yeah, that's a good point. That's I was point. curious if we knew. So, uh, Ned, yeah, Ned didn't really care what people thought of him going into Shataya's, which is kind of interesting. But Tyrion doesn't either, except that he does want to hide who he's really seeing. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of uh, inverse here. Tyrion is concealing his visits to Shay by walking in through the front door and pretending to care about his name being said aloud, as if he's not obvious in sight. It's funny, he walks in, and it's, it's obvious he's Tyrion. I mean, no one else looks like him, and they're like, my lord, he's like, don't use my name. Like, what? <laughs> uh, it's also ironic that he's using the tunnel backwards. It was intended for the hand to sneak into Chitayas, not out. The prior hand didn't want to be seen, and Tyrion w- does want to be seen, and pretends to see Alayaya. So <laughs> this is all very funny. Of course, it backfires, and that part's not funny. When Cersei uses Aliyaya as leverage against Tyrion and has her whipped, yeah, that's not funny. So, but what it, it does create new plot arcs, or at least subtleties within these plot arcs, which is that Shataya certainly hates Cersei Lannister. Aliyaya is her daughter, so that's straightforward. But Shataya liked Bara and her mother, and that happened in her brothel. Alardim killed them, so. And, and that was ordered by Cersei. So this is why Tyrion can be pretty sure he can trust Shataya against Cersei because it's very clear that Shataya is no fan of Cersei and that's putting it mildly. So who did tell on Tyrion then? Since it's probably not Shataya who told. I don't know. I really don't. It's, it's probably just some, it could just be some faceless informer that isn't a character that's mentioned. But someone did. Uh, it's not clear, like I said. But it's notable that Tyrion doesn't actually trust Bronn with the real story. He does not tell Bronn what he's doing. He doesn't mention the tunnel. Uh, well, let's talk about the tunnel itself. So it's it's actually a passage from some some stable near the Red Keep to Shatayas, built as a secret entrance for privacy. Now, that's... I want to be clear on that. Some people... You know, sometimes I had... In, in the past, I had remembered it as a passage from the Red Keep to Shatayas directly. Um, I don't mean like within the last few years, but a long time ago, I used to think of it that way. And I suspect a few other people may have uh, remembered it that way as well, but that's not really the case. And it's really something if you think about it, having the secret tunnel, like this must have caused, uh, must have been some real arranging to do this in secret. Um, and it's, it really, this really puts the customers at Molestown to shame. I mean, they're digging for buried treasure. This is tunneling for buried treasure you get like a work detail (laughs) going for the buried treasure i mean this is three whole blocks underground according to Tyrion's estimate so Uh, and whoever it was tywin or otherwise and i do think it was tywin's probably 
they were even more concerned than the Black Brothers in getting caught, which is kind of ironic, right? You've got Tywin, who, as a man of power and authority, one of the most powerful people in all the Seven Kingdoms, doesn't have the freedom to walk in the front door to Chitayas, at least in his mind, he doesn't because of the things he's done in, in his past. He could he could just do it and people would talk about it and oh well. But Tywin cares what people think in that sense, right? He's all big about acting like he doesn't care what people think, but he clearly does, at least in some ways. Uh, I mean, he wouldn't, you wouldn't, you don't have that kind of pride. You don't get that vindictive about what people say and think about you without have without caring what people think. And uh, so it's funny, the Black Brothers actually can get, letter of the law, they're supposed to get, you know, executed for, or at least severely punished for digging for buried treasure, but they don't really. Uh, so it's a bit of a dichotomy, the, 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 the highborn and their use of brothels and the lowborn and, and their use of brothels that they're not allowed to use. And so, yeah, I do think it was Tywin's tunnel. Um, for one thing, it just fits really well as, as, as far as Tywin's issues with sex workers. Uh, he's, he, you know, there's turn given that Shay turns up in his bed and the whole thing with Tysha and how he lied and forced Jamie to get. Tyrion to think that Tysha was a sex worker and of course his father is the biggest part of all meaning his well his father's mistress who was also a sex worker that dressed up in his mother's clothing and Tywin just hated this all so much so it just fits so well I, you know it's one it's one thing to put that as evidence but it just it just fits so well <laughs> and the biggest issue of all Tyrion's ish, or Tywin's issues with sex workers is the crossbow bolt in his gut hey oh if he had said instead of saying wherever whores go, if he had said wherever sex workers go, eh, maybe he wouldn't have been shot. Tyrion would have been like, wait, you didn't technically, I don't know, maybe he'd shoot him in the leg or something. Uh, good catch by Nina here. Another small piece of evidence might lie in the window where the room, the tunnel is concealed, lies in. Quote. Within the room was a great canopy bed, a tall wardrobe decorated with erotic carvings, and a narrow window of leaded glass in a pattern of red and yellow diamonds. Hello, Lannister colors. Hmm, yeah. So here we also have Varys clearly making sure Tyrion sees his mummer's skills. I think he wants him to be impressed. And again, like he did with revealing the traitor's captain of the White Heart, he demonstrates his value. Quote. Even his walk is different, Tyrion observed. The scent of sour wine and garlic clung to Varys instead of lavender. I like this new garb of yours, he offered as they went. <laughs> I like this new garb of yours. They're walking in a tunnel, remember. No one else is there. It's an underground tunnel. There, no one even could possibly be listening. So the fake walk is completely unnecessary. Maybe it's actually his normal walk, and his walk walking around in the Red Keep is his fake walk. Either way, he can't be unaware that Tyrion is going to notice. Tyrion is, is too observant, and this is just too blatant. So I don't know what Varys wants Tyrion to think, but he knows Tyrion is catching on to this. Um, and also in this chapter, Tyrion ceases production of gold cloak armor, and you know you wonder if that is one of the many things that makes Cersei paranoid. Uh, maybe she sees that as a threat to her own protection. Of course, later he sends all her guards away in an effort to rescue Jamie, but because it's an effort to rescue Jamie, yeah. Tyrion plays with Cersei quite a bit in these chapters. Uh and this is really uh Joe Buckley points out this is probably the almost certainly the first time that we see 
really different Varus. I mean, we do see Varus uh, as the jailer visiting Ned, and Ned is astonished at how different he looks. But it's most of that is conversation. You don't really see the movement of Varus walking around. It's not quite as clear. So I guess you could say Ned's experience with Varus was his first real, uh, our first real look into Varus's abilities as someone else. But this is uh, makes it makes it more distinct and more clear. So it's kind of a build up, I suppose you could say. Now Tyrion, uh, Joe Buckley also points out how this kind of backfires on Tyrion a little bit. His play uh, with Aliyaya and Shataya, and I've already pointed out the backfiring part of Aliyaya getting whipped. But I mean how this all gets brought up in his trial. Like a lot of these things get brought up about his character. And it kind of stacks up against him in ways that he didn't foresee. All right, a couple of random questions and thoughts from y'all and a few others from us. A super chat from Lisa Love, who says, excited to finally be able to send a super chat and for a Shea. Well, thank you, Lisa. Uh, the evidence, um, what's interesting about all these things I said about Tywin and sex workers is that it's another example of George giving us the riddle or uh, or giving us the answer before he gives us the riddle. Because Tywin's issues with sex workers isn't really apparent yet. We know it because we're rereading. But we don't, We it, technically in the story, Tytos's story isn't given yet. We don't know about Tytos and how he treated his uh, his mistress. And we, don't, we haven't heard about um, a lot of the stuff with Tysha. So it's really kind of, and of course, the Shea scene in his bed, obviously that hasn't happened yet. So... It's a good example of uh, the design of the series being meant to be reread. Stefan B. from Flick points out a great little quote. Uh, Cersei uses the phrase barefaced naked villainy. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of naked villainy, Cersei, someone's going to be taking a walk later. Stefan also wonders about Varus's stubble on his head. Like, how does it? How does he do that? Is it so fast? Well, I can tell you, as someone who used to shave his head, stubble grows on your head really fast. So it's it's it could be a matter of like you can have stubble like it's like a five o'clock shadow. You can if to keep your head completely clean on the top, you have to shave it almost every day. So if all Varus has to do is is slack off a little bit on his shaving and it'll grow out. And at the beginning of the chapter, Cersei's like, where's Varus? So maybe Varus has been hiding for a day or two uh, to do that. Um, Ash, you have a question here, huh? Yeah, I was just wondering if you had a thought. I don't know if you knew off the top of your head. Who do you think would have the most point of view chapters in subsequent books? Do you know in each book? And if not, you have a, a gut feeling that we'll find that we can answer. I have not. I have okay. not looked at it, but I believe that I'm guessing that the person who has the most chapters from this point on is Arya uh, because mm. she's by herself for so much of it. Um, whereas like in King's Landing, you can occasionally get some something from a different character. Like eventually we have Cersei's point of view so that and Tyr Tyrion is gone from King's Landing. So a lot of these characters end up in multiple uh, in positions where there's other POVs around them. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know it's not bram yeah. you know and we know it's not it's probably not like sansa sansa's chapters tend to be uh her like in feast for example her chapters are long but she yeah. doesn't have very many of them. okay so yeah but yeah i guess my question is which one do you think first one was swords which one for a feast for crows and which one for dance with dragons but i think we can just answer that next week yeah i actually I, do I, not know yeah i think it's head. interesting to think about um, cool. yeah, we'll I, I like that you pointed out Tyrion and ned right on um, 
we'll definitely look that up and have that answer for y'all next week. Good call, Ash. Moving on. Brand two, the one where they hear about Ramsey, a.k.a. the gang meets Manderly. Brand, Lewin scolds Bran over not being lordly. The Walders mock Hodor. The sad short tale of Lady Hornwood begins. The Serwins and Umbers and Glovers arrive. We meet a few other Northerners. Bran has a flashback, perhaps a panic attack of some kind, when someone mentions the Kingslayer. And that's the end of the chapter. At the start, Bran is already having trouble sleeping due to the troubling dreams, both tree and wolf and otherwise. And that's without thinking about Jamie and his fall. So there's just... We're piling on poor Bran here. He's really having a tough time. Quote, first line of the chapter. Long before the first pale fingers of light pried apart Bran's shutters, his eyes were open. Yeah, he's been miserable, lonely. Like I said, he's having more dreams. Not just the the wolf and tree dreams, but like I said, there's also this three-eyed crow pecking a hole in his skull that's like a that's like a nightmare he doesn't know what's he doesn't know that it's his third eye that's happening but that's clearly the imagery when bran when he's poking a hole in this between his eyes and pulling out bits of brain and then then bran can see again uh, so the the metaphor is very clear when you know what to look for but bran has no idea what's happening so manderly arrives that is a big deal because uh, obviously wyman manderly is really important it's interesting how early he's being introduced versus how long it'll be before he actually starts to have a big impact on the story. This is a a very early introduction to a character whose importance doesn't really come till later. But of course, there's things happening in the background, and these things take a while to get going. Some of the things he talks about are long-term projects. And by the time he gets busy in A Dance with Dragons, or we find out that he has been busy since well before A Dance with Dragons, well, it's because he needed time to do some of those things. He comments on his son and talks about how Willis would not want to miss the war. He's fierce as a mastiff, and that's sad. I put a a sad face emoji in the document here because poor Willis was captured twice during the war, both times sent to Heron Hall. The second time, he was fed Vargo Hote and starved. In so both cases, uh, and uh, was is just a wreck of a man now, um, from all we can tell. And he's likely to be in charge of White Harbor. Uh, because Wyman Manderly is not long for this world, it seems. So we have a guy who's heavily traumatized, probably going to be in charge of White Harbor uh, when the worst happens. And I don't even mean the Boltons. I mean the others. Uh, I expand on this point in great detail. <laughs> not to pat myself on the back, I just mean there's a lot of detail uh, in our Manderly episodes. So check those out if you haven't. But this is also... Uh, brand getting more practice being in charge these are all this is all pseudo brand practice for being king and here's a quote that that talks about some of that one day you will be a good lord for winterfell i think no i won't brand knew he would never be a lord nor more no more than he could be a knight it's true so he, he, it's true he's never going to be a lord if we follow the show's pattern Technically, he's never Lord of Winterfell. He just jumps straight over that rank to king <laughs> and doesn't without being in charge of the North. That part I'm not as sure about for the books, but regardless, the point I, I, I think it's pretty clear that this is a, a nice little technicality that George has put in front of us. It's like, yeah, not going to be Lord of Winterfell. <laughs> wink, wink. And Roderick responds with the anecdotes about his family and how 
it looked like the Cassells were doing well. There were four sons from his brother, and but then they all died, and how he never had uh, a son either. And he says, when we speak of the morrow, nothing is ever certain. And, well, that's true. Uh, we certainly have a lot of things change. A lot of people die. Rob dies. John becomes heir instead. Brand vanishes, and everybody thinks he's dead. So it's obviously... It's, a, it's just such a blatantly true statement. When we speak of the morrow, nothing is ever certain. I mean, obviously that's true. Like, but in this case, in terms of heirs and, and dynasties, it's particularly true. And it's even more true in times of war. So I've, I've previously noted, as many people did, that it's a little odd that Lewin and Roderick and others call him Prince Bran and speak of how he's next in line. But no one actually ever calls him heir to the crown or that he might be king someday. They just bring it up indirectly by saying he's heir to Winterfell or Rob's heir. So I think this is more clever language by George dancing around the point. They don't say heir to the throne, heir to Rob's crown. They, they, the language is very specific. Now that we know to look for it, it's suspicious that it's not there. They don't say one day you'll be king of Winterfell. They say one day you'll be lord of Winterfell, which is... When you think about it, it's like, that's not the language they should be using. So it's, a, like I said, it's, it's George being a little clever with uh, dancing around the, uh, the direct point here. Wyman brings up uh, some of the specific things. Let's talk about some of the specific things he brings up. Um, well, in general, one conversation that's not just with Wyman, but with a lot of the Northern Lords is, is the harvest storage. Uh, it's... This feels like a bit of George talking about, you know, what was Aragorn's tax policy when we get into the nitty gritty of storage of the harvests and how Lewin and Roderick are trying to get people to store a fifth or a fourth of their uh, produce instead of a fifth or in some cases, one one house that they were only storing a tenth. And they were like, no, you got to do better than that. And we know that that's still not enough based on uh, how long this summer has been and meaning how long the winter will probably be. And it could be even worse because of, well, the others making it worse. That's pretty clear, right? And all the war and and all the starvation should be pretty bad because of that. So all this storage is just not going to be enough. Uh, He mentions perhaps having a mint for King Rob. Now, we know from Davos's chapters, the mint never actually gets going. When Davos goes to White Harbor, he sees people uh, using the mint as like a refugee shelter. Um, which but hey, is, Shire Post Mint has Rob Star coins. Hey, that's true. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I mean, Manderley never made any, but Shire Post Mint did. <laughs> Check Shire Post Mint out. Yeah, you get a fifteen percent off of uh, if you use the discount code Westeros. Yeah, now that's organic yeah. advertising. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, in addition to the mints, which didn't happen, we have something that did happen. Here's a quote. I have been building warships for more than a year. Some you saw, but there are as many, there are as many more hidden up the white knife. Sir Roderick pulled at his whiskers. You have forests of tall pine and old oak. Lord Manderley has shipwrights and sailors in plenty. Together, you ought to be able to float enough longships to guard both your coasts. So I really, we kind of read those quotes out of order, but the the point is, Roderick is telling Manderley that he can do this, and he's telling the Umbers that uh, they should work together. And they do, uh, because these ships are getting built. The quote I read was Manderley talking to Davos, telling him that this has been happening. So that implies the Umbers and Manderleys have been working together. Uh, It confirms it. 
So that's very important vis-a-vis the plots happening at Winterfell right now with one of the Umbers, you know, blowing horns and digging pit traps for uh, the Boltons and Freys to fall into, and the other Umber maybe pretending to be nice in order to uh, keep their uh, nephew, the Great John, from being executed for, uh, you know, because he's a hostage. So this is very important because we know the Manderleys are definitely working behind the scenes to overthrow the Boltons, to work against the Boltons, to maybe uh, go be pro-Stannis. So the Umbers are probably in on all that as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the Umbers mentions that the wildlings are as active as they've ever been. Part of the reason they want ships isn't for the greater war effort, although that's part of it. The other part is because the Umbers are saying, hey, we need more ships to stop these wildling raids. They get on little boats and paddle over and do their business and there's not enough of us to stop them. And, well, this is a, a white-bearded man. Uh, I forget if it's Hother or Moore's Umber who says it, but he, both of them are pretty old. So you have someone saying they've never seen wildlings this active before. Well, that means something coming from a guy who's lived in the north near the wildlings for 60, 70 years or something like that. Bran wonders if a crippled person has ever commanded a warship. Because, uh, well, he's thinking about things he could do. And actually don't have an example of such. Um, Nina brought up a historical example that's kind of the closest we can get, but it's uh, it's not a great parallel, but it's the closest we can get. So I'm not even going to bother explaining it. The point is we don't, I thought maybe this was a little foreshadowy, a little reverse psychology kind of thing, but probably not. To be fair, we also don't get very many disabled people in the books, period. That's true, because, you know, most Historically disabled, and yeah. in real life. Yeah, that's true. In real There's... life, but sorry, in, in modern Westerosi time mm. and historically. Disabled people in the nobility have a decent life, and if they're not in the nobility, they're a lot of times they don't even have the opportunity to grow into adulthood. Um, so, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Uh, Manderly himself, though, is an interesting comparison to Bran. He's grown so large, his legs are not much use. Can't ride a horse. Bran can only ride a horse with a special saddle. And it's mentioned how Manderly's size creates logistical issues for being with a woman. And Bran can't be with a woman at all. So they have things in common, not isn't good it, things. I'm sorry, but... isn't that something we don't actually know for sure? Wasn't that a thing we discussed that they... we don't know for sure? No, yeah. that's why I'm saying it's. Uh, did I say it's impossible? I don't you know. Didn't if it's say possible. impossible. You said Rand can't be with a woman at all. Yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe it's, maybe he can't. We don't like, know. Maybe that. he can't. We just don't yeah. know. It's not like they could prove that. Well, yesterday. Ned thinks he can't. Yeah. I'm taking my cues from Ned, who thinks that won't happen. So maybe yeah. maybe some off-screen thing. Lewin said it's you know that. Yeah, I just don't know how well they can prove that. Anyway, yeah. whatever. That's a digression. We have talked about this before. I think it's you're interesting. I shouldn't be so sure. You're right. Yeah, but regardless, I think the idea that Bran is you know kind of lost mentally as well it also speaks to him not ever consummating anything with a woman good point but yeah yeah. so another character introduced here the the sad like i said the sad short tale of lady hornwood she's had a, a rough go of it her son and husband both died in the war very early on and bren you know being a good kid that he is he he wants to send her home with 100 men and he knows he can't, though, because they don't have 100 men to spare. And, well, it's too bad he didn't have 100 men to spare, because when she leaves the Harvest Feast, uh, Ramsey captures her and forcibly marries her, and awful things happen. If she had had 100 extra men guarding her, that almost certainly wouldn't have happened. So the Hornwood inheritance is a major issue. It gets more difficult after Lady Hornwood's 
uh, capture. But the, if we're looking ahead, the, the same people they discuss as heir are still uh, out there. They're still alive. The main candidate is Lawrence Snow. And there's an interesting quote here from Bran. Then let Lord Hornwood's bastard be the heir, Bran said, thinking of his half-brother, John. Yeah, so there's kind of some vibes to Rob's heir there. It's a very similar comparison. It's like, let Lord Hornwood's bastard be the heir. And it's like, he's literally thinking of John. And John does end up being heir to Rob over Bran. And uh, part of that is because Bran vanishes, but also part of it is Bran's capacity. As, uh, as someone who can breed and all that, or at least his people's thinking that about him. And also, of course, it's uh, mentioned um, that there's, uh, that his age is an issue, right? We have this youth, Lawrence is, is only 12 years old. And of course, that would be an insult to Lady Hornwood because it's, you know, it's not, his, she's not related to this bastard. It's her husband's uh, child. So it's a very difficult situation. And of course, there's all these entangling marriages and relations that come up. It becomes quite clear that the North does a lot of intermarrying. And unlike the South, uh, that's a much smaller pool of marriages, right? Like Ned married Catelyn, who is a Southern house. But for the most part, that was uh, breaking with tradition. If you look at the Stark family tree, almost all the marriages are within the North, with a few exceptions. And many of those exceptions are like the Blackwoods, who are technically still old gods worshippers, even though they're not in the North. Point being, when they're talking about who can inherit Hornwood, there's all these other families that have blood in the Hornwood line. Like Manderley's like, well, Danella Hornwood was born a Manderley. And the Tallhearts are like, well, this kid is half uh, Hornwood because her, his mother was Hornwood. And so there's just a lot of decent claims to Hornwood, none of which really stand out over the others. And then it's complicated further by Ra, uh, by the thought that Rob might want to marry Riverlands houses to Northern houses, because this is a new Riverlands Northern kingdom. And to strengthen the kingdom, you marry the houses, uh, the noble houses within your kingdom to each other, uh, the ones who are not necessarily automatically uh, or already allied, people that don't have historical alliances or at least historical friendships in other words like why would say house uh bracken have much to do with house umber well they have very little reason to but if they're all of a sudden in a kingdom together with nobody else and only the only the riverlands in the north are in this kingdom well then you have a lot more reason to marry them together but when it's the seven kingdoms an umber marrying a bracken is a little random there's also precedent for this, uh, and I don't mean northern houses marrying southern houses. I mean commoners. Uh, of course, I do also mean northern houses marrying southern houses, like, say, Lady uh, Alisanne Blackwood, Black Alley Blackwood, marrying Lord Cregan Stark. And those two are a big, are a, a segue to the marriages of Riverlands and North. There's a extra bit of cultural connection between them because at the end of the dance, in the aftermath, all these Northerners who came south to die, they, they left the winter to come south to die in war, didn't die in war because they didn't get to fight. Um, the ones who came with Cregan anyway. Didn't. The ones who came with Roddy the Ruin got to fight, and most of them did die. So the ones who came south were like, well, what do we do now? Some of them went off to Essos as sellswords, but some of them stayed in the Riverlands, married southern brides, and uh, settled down. 
And there was a need for this because, as always happens in the Seven Kingdoms, when there's civil war, the Riverlands gets bashed. It's getting bashed here in our current timeline, and it got bashed in the dance. It got devastated, just horribly devastated. Probably just as bad as we see Gregor and, and Hote and Lorch doing it. Uh, it was different people doing it, but same basic result. So the point being, a lot of people died, mostly the men who had to march off and fight in these battles and mostly died. So there was a lack of marriageable husbands. So these northerners with nowhere to go filled that gap pretty perfectly. <clears throat> now, Ramsey, it's kind of incredible how he comes on the scene without coming on the scene. He gets talked about quite a bit in this chapter. They talk about how he's kind of a new figure in the North because he had lived with his mother until Domeric died, and that was only about two years ago. So uh, they talk about how he's not well-known. And he, well, we know he certainly will soon. And he's, he does worse things than the others. I mean, the others do some, some stuff up there in the North, but it's kind of vague exactly what they're doing. But they're not like torturing people and, and locking them in towers to starve to death. So, yeah, very important setup for Ramsey. Of course, he's more about him later, but quite a lot of talk about him in this chapter and uh, not just about him, but about things that he's going to have to deal with or he's going to have to do with like Lady Hornwood. Reek is mentioned as well, and that's important because obviously, unlike the show, there's, these are two distinct people. We never actually meet the real Reek. Ramsey pretends to be Reek. And then, of course, Theon becomes Reek. So there's just like three different Reeks in the books. And uh, in, the, in the show, I guess there's just Ramsey himself pretending to be Reek. He doesn't call himself that, I don't think. Uh, but it's basically the same thing. We also get the Wild Hares, which is uh, the tall heart, like, kind of squad they form they're young guys who didn't go south with rob and of course they're gonna get killed by theon uh the serwins show up and uh well they don't show up yet but they're mentioned here and then later they show up it's mentioned that lord medgar serwin is one of tywin's prisoners but uh he's gonna die in the ensuing uh aftermath um no in no real incident uh, or uh thought that there's foul play there it's possible that Medgar Serwin was, uh, Tywin wanted him dead, but I don't really see, I can't really see why. I think he was just more valuable as a hostage. So it's possible someone offed him, but I kind of doubt it. Mild amusement at how uh, sexual topics are avoided or misunderstood since we're dealing with an eight-year-old boy, POV, who doesn't fully understand you know, sexual topics. They're not going to tell him why Hothar Umber is nicknamed Horsebane, for example. <laughs> Uh, in case you've forgotten, he killed a male sex worker who tried to rob him. And here's a line that I think is hilarious, quote. Bran knew that men slept on top of women when they shared a bed. <laughs> that's so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> on top of God, that's just like, I need to roll over. But this man is on top of me. <laughs> well, well, that's how we sleep. <laughs> just have to live with it. Uh, less amusing, in fact, not amusing at all, is Bran thinking of how Hodor won't fight even when he's being picked on or people are attacking him. And this is sad because, or extra sad, because when Bran does make Hodor fight via skin changing into him, Hodor's probably aware of it, and it's just it's it's making him suffer most likely. Like this is not me. I don't do this. It's it's very uncomfortable. And I mean, he just he suffers when Bran just takes him, borrows his brain to walk around. So if he's suffering just walking around than being forced to fight that's gotta be having your mind stolen is not good even when you're hodor it doesn't really matter who you are. 
So there's a lot of characters that uh, are worthy of a where are they now. I am definitely going to publish a couple of where are they nows pretty soon. I wanted to get past this hump of these big, big early chapters. The the book, the chapters are a little more, uh, well, let's just say I'm looking ahead. This this These early chapters are the biggest chunks of information. They, they contain the most detail, the most to talk about. Of course, there's plenty more to talk about later in the book, obviously. But these early chapters set up so much because of all the introductions. There's so many new characters. Once we get to know the characters, there's more, a little more action and resolution, climax, things like that. So I'm figuring out how to group them. But just as a list, Lawrence Snow, Baron Tallhart, the Wild Hares, Clay Serwin, Moores and Hother Umber, Willis Manderley, Beth Cassell, Lord Locke, Lady Flint, a lot of names. Uh, there's also a whole bunch of ca- cast of characters around Winterfell now. But I'm not going to bother with them because they all meet the same fate, which is death by Ramsey. Uh, a few of them are are alive probably at the Dreadfort because he captures some of the women. Um, so a few of them I may mention, but all the men are killed. Uh, there's a mention here, quote, you could, be, you could have been a knight too, I bet, Bran told him. If the gods hadn't taken your wits, you would have been a great knight. And this is uh, maybe a nod to a couple of things. One, it might be a nod to what we just talked about with Bran making him into a knight by taking over his brain and using his brain in place and just using Hodor's body to fight with. But also it reminds us of Duncan A. Because Dunk is probably, almost certainly, uh, Hodor's ancestor. And, well, they're a similar size, and Dunk was a great knight. So it's kind of in his genes, you could say. Uh, the the Hornwoods, Joe Buckley points out a great parallel here. The Hornwoods are like a microcosm of the Riverlands. Everyone's fighting over them. No one really cares about the people. It's all about the power of controlling that land. It's, you could, you know, all the people could, could be slaughtered and it wouldn't matter, especially someone like Tywin. They care about controlling it. They want that power. And the, another similarity is in the geography. The Hornwood lands are surrounded by all these enemies that uh, even the Manderleys are kind of... Uh, ambitious about it they're not as cruel not nearly as cruel but Wyman Manderley wants those lands you know he's not he's not just being a, a good guy about it he's way better than Ramsey but there's some and there's definitely some cynical ambition in, on his side as well it's just <laughs> not as brutal or not brutal at all really uh so there's people on all sides you can see people c- coming up to claim it and then we have Ramsey putting his soldiers in there and then Manderley seizes the castle to keep the Boltons from taking the castle themselves and blah, blah, blah. So it does kind of feel like a microcosm of the Riverlands people, enemies on all sides, claimants on all sides. Good call by Joe there. And of course, besides Ramsey not being there, there's no Boltons at all. And that's interesting because the Boltons are the second most powerful house in the North at this point will soon be the most powerful house. Presumably by the end, they won't be, but <laughs> As things are. And Joe points out another interesting thing, like a device by George. It's a common theme for him to set up a lot of the villainous characters off screen first, like Euron in Theon's chapter. The way Theon thinks about Euron and the way Asha talks about Euron is like, well, this guy is dangerous. We don't actually see it first. We hear about it first. Same thing for Tywin to to a lesser extent, who we don't see till the end of the Game of Thrones, but he gets talked about as this overwhelming, powerful dominating figure uh likewise like joe says here bolton's presence is huge but we don't see them and they're being set up to be much bigger villains 
and arguably Stannis falls into that category. He's not really a villain, although he uh, sort of gets a villain, a villain's buildup. Uh, he turns out to not be a villain, even though he has some, eh, there's some villainy in him, uh, but mostly not. Uh, but it's a similar device used here. He's mostly built up off screen. Then we finally meet him and uh, the rumors become less hazy. We start to form our own opinion, things like that. Uh, a couple other uh, questions from you guys from TPJ Super Chat. I do not know what currency that is, but thank you very much. That is Korean. Korean. I, that might be our first Korean Super Chat. Yeah, the one. That's very cool. Uh, Matt Reese says, oh, he looks like Matt Reese did the uh, the work here. Most chapters in A Storm of Swords, Arya with 13. Most chapters in A Feast for Crows are uh, Cersei with 10. Most chapters in A Dance with Dragons, John with 13. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for doing that work, Matt. Uh, so None of them hit 15 like yeah. Matt and Tyrion did. Yeah, Close. yeah, you're right. Which, which they might still have the same total like length, you know. Yeah. But you're right. Uh, that's that, that's a different sort of uh, analysis. So that's very good. So Arya the most in a Storm of Swords, Cersei with ten in a Piece for Crows. That's I didn't. I would not have guessed that. That's really neat. Cersei having so many, and Dance of Dragons. John, that that makes a lot of sense. John's chapters are very busy. There's a lot going on there uh, with him being in charge and everything. Uh, Abraham Gabeu says maybe Bran. Or someone else should get the fermented crab from Davos. <laughs> one bite and it'll break through his chainmail, right? <laughs> Start yeah, poking through his chainmail. That's a really um, good one. But also on that subject, we had a dis- we had a conversation that will, as people joke, bring the FBI knocking at our door. Yeah. But just the idea that what brand getting an erection in the future, like that would tell us a lot whether he does or not if he's into Mira. Yeah, I bet George is really looking forward to writing that. I mean, he's written a lot of weird shit. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Meat House Man and all these other books that are just like, whoa. So, you know, but it was a long discussion that I had to bring up. <laughs> I just had to. Sorry, FBI. Really, this is a fictional character we're talking about. Really, <laughs> really. So minor note, um, we frequently try to remind you all when a book character looks different than their show counterpart. Uh, George R. Martin, remember, he praised Natalia Tena's version of OSHA. But to the point where he said that it was going to affect how he wrote her. Yeah. So this isn't uh, this isn't really a plotting thing. It's just a kind of getting ourselves straight with with appearances. Book Osha looks different. She's not pretty. And Natalia Tena is very pretty. Uh, you know, they, they make her look all messy, but can't hide that she's pretty. <laughs> that first scene where you see Osha and her yeah. hair. Yeah. Iconic to me, that hair that she had. <laughs> oh, my God. But yeah. <laughs> so Book Osha has short hair. It's just gotten to her ears uh, after being, you know, and she's been at Winterfell for a while and presumably hasn't been cutting it. So she must have had really short hair when they first found her. She's covered in scars, too. And she says, well-earned scars. And uh, oh, she's also very insightful, which is not different than her show character. Her show character is also very insightful. Osha notices that little Walder is dangerous. And she's right, though it's Big Walder who kills Little Walder, and she didn't necessarily notice that Big Walder was this. That's because Big Walder is more subtle, whereas Little Walder is more of a bully. So it's, it is a little more apparent that he's bad news. Uh, Stefan B. Um, has a uh, quote here. The navigating of different interests and requests by the various lords in Winterfell is by far on a lower level than King's Landing intrigue. No wonder Ned wasn't quite up to the task. Now, this is in response to... Uh, the talk about um, Bran's difficulties managing, or not just his difficulties, just Bran being proto-king, uh, being you know, 
king by proxy in Rob's place and having to deal with these inheritance situations and all that. And how it's there's less intrigue, there's less uh, less to navigate, but it's still very difficult and complicated. So that's what Stefan's pointing to, that uh, this is the kind of thing Ned might have been able to handle pretty well, but at King's Landing, there's just so many other considerations for every political decision. Several people, including Abraham and J.D. J. Dead Redhead, are wondering how Ned would have handled the Hornwood situation. Uh, it's a That is a really tough call. I think maybe he would have favored Lawrence Snow, but I've, I tend to think he would have gone with Baron Tallhart, who was the second candidate they brought up. Baron is uh, like, well, he's a Tallhart, but his mother was a Hornwood. And well, I, I think that the scenario is also the problem here with, with trying to figure out what Ned would have done is that if Ned was in charge, you have to assume that there's not civil war about to break out and there's not all this turmoil. Uh, one of the reasons they weren't excited about Lawrence and less excited about Baron Tallhart taking over is that they didn't want a child lord uh, taking over with, with the Boltons and Manderleys and all these other people pressing them. You know, they were like, how is a child going to defend against the Boltons? You know, that's just too difficult. Uh, but if Ned is the Stark in Winterfell, you got to think that the Boltons and the Manderleys aren't going to be pushing as hard. They're not going to be sending troops into Hornwood lands when Ned Stark is sitting there at Winterfell in times of peace. This is a lot of this is happening because of the chaos. They're taking advantage of the chaos. And if Ned were in charge, well, there probably wouldn't be the chaos. So it's kind of hard to to handle to to guess at what Ned would have done because the situation would have been a lot different. However, if we I will say that I do think it would be Baron Tallhart because uh Ned's a bit conservative and Baron Tallhart is uh trueborn. So Lawrence Snow, not trueborn, maybe uh ah so JD, I see a correction here. It's jaded redhead, not J dead redhead. I never knew that. <laughs> you've been you've been a commenter for a while. And we never knew that. So that's cool. I'm glad to know. Now we know to call you Jaded Redhead. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. So yeah, I think uh, yeah, it's a good what if such a scenario. How would Ned handle the Hornwood situation? So I'm going to say Baron Tallhart is, is my guess. Uh, and time to move on. Tyrion Four. The gang gets tricked on marriage alliances, aka the one where. Uh, Tyrion counts to three. Tyrion steals some drugs from Pycelle so he can keep Cersei occupied on the toilet. But though she later spends a lot of time in there, he never does shoot her with a crossbow. But Joff is shooting rabbits with one while we see food shortages beginning in the city. Yes, while people are starving, Joff is just killing rabbits for sport. And yeah. <laughs> the chapter begins not unlike the branch. Hey, that chapter happens that in the real world too, Aziz. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> The chapter begins not unlike the brand chapter that precedes it with someone who has been awake since before dawn. It was a boy. Now it's an old man. Quote. I do not sleep as I did when I was younger. Grandmaster Pycelle told him by way of apology for the dawn meeting. Well, that doesn't bother Tyrion. See, Tyrion, uh, in a few chapters, Tyrion's going to point out, he's going to point out that Lancel comes to him in the middle of the night to try to get him while he's tired and maybe make him, maybe make him easier to get off guard. And Tyrion's thinking how bad of a plan that is because of how little he sleeps anyway and how he's going to likely to be awake in the middle of the night anyway. So I need to keep an eye on, too. Noticing small patterns that I didn't necessarily pay much attention to before, Tyrion 
maybe more than in this chapter than others, or maybe it's just because I'm just now keying in on it. Maybe it actually happens a lot more than than I'm thinking. He Tyrion interrupts people and finishes their sentence for them a lot. And I've been in combination reading and listening to these chapters, usually both, actually. I'll, a lot of times I'll read them and then I'll listen to them so I can really get a thorough run through. And things like interruptions in a conversation stand out more in an audiobook because you have this very sudden change in voice. Someone's cutting, someone's cutting in. Or when you're reading it, you know, it doesn't quite have that impact because it's not audible. To a listener, interruptions just stand out more. Kind of like if you're reading and you have one, like a whole page of, of words and one sentence is in all caps. And that would really stand out on the page. It's like, whoa, all caps. And it's someone's yelling or something or something's loud. Uh, it's similar to to that effect, I think. So you got to like how Tyrion works the angles here. Now, on one hand, Tyrion's fooling himself and thinking that just because Pycelle was easier to catch lying, that Littlefinger and Varys aren't lying to him. But he's not, Tyrion doesn't actually think that. Tyrion is aware that Littlefinger and Varys are more subtle and that they're harder to catch. And he thinks this precisely. He thinks this exact thing. So he's not fooled. But at the same time, he wants to keep them on their toes. He needs them to know that he knows uh, so that they are aware he's formidable. So they take They know seriously. he knows. They know he knows they know. Yeah. <laughs> that really comes up with Littlefinger <laughs> with the dagger. He, he knows I know. I know he, does he know I know he knows? <laughs> <laughs> another thing about, uh, as an aside to the interruptions, another conversation tactic Tyrion uses a lot is staring at people with his mismatched eyes. That works on a lot of people, and in this scene with Pycelle, it works on him. But it does not work on Littlefinger or Varys. Varys, it does, I don't think it comes up with Varys. But with Littlefinger, it, it's pointed out that Littlefinger stares him directly in the eye. Like, he's very the opposite of in intimidated by Tyrion. He's, like, proving how unintimidated he is. Do you think Blood Raven pulled this Tyrion trick? Do you think Tyrion's pulling a Blood Raven here? Ooh, yeah. That's a great call. I imagine Blood Raven. Blood Raven just takes off like a patch. <laughs> He's like, like, looks at, looks deep into your eyes. Yeah, he had a black, his eyes were black and red. Yeah. <laughs> it's a black by absence of an yeah, eyeball. Yeah, like the Skellera or whatever, yes. <laughs> yeah, we and in our Blood Raven episodes, we have drawn a lot of parallels between Blood Raven and Tyrion. So that is, uh, I don't know that we made this one though. The, the staring at people yeah so uh but we did we did point out that they are both intimidating in their look like that they're sinister looking but i don't know yeah they're both creepy as hell looking yeah like i would not trust either of them if i met them i know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover but like they look like if i was in westeros and you believed in magic and like things like that i would i would think something's wrong with them yeah the gods have not blessed them <laughs> especially blood right yeah especially <laughs> like, <whoa. him. laughs> what is up with that dude So. Think about this from Pycelle's point of view. We know that he's like, as Varus puts it, he's just antsy and squirming because he knows he wants to know what's in that letter so bad. And T Tyrion is baiting him so bad. Tyrion gives him two letters precisely because he knows he's going to steal one of them and the other one's going to get sent out. But like I said, from Pycelle's perspective, he's Cersei's informer. So if he sends some important letter, Cersei's going to know want to know what it is. And if Pycelle doesn't tell her, He's, she's going to get paranoid and think that Pycelle is now working for Tyrion because that's how she is. And Pycelle is afraid of being seen that way. And not just because he doesn't want Cersei to think that, but because Cersei is scary too. He doesn't want, Pycelle doesn't want Cersei to think he's a traitor because he knows what she'll do to him. 
And so Pycelle's in a real tough spot. He he can't seem like he's not being a good informer. Exactly like Varus, right? Varus has to keep giving useful information to continue to be useful. If he ceases to be useful, then he's doomed. And well, Pycelle points this out later. He says, no, Vice Varus will... He holds so much back for every one secret he gives you, there's seven he doesn't. Well, that's true. Pycelle's right about that. But that doesn't absolve Pycelle of being Cersei's informer in Tyrion's point of view. Now, there's a little sneaky little bit. At the end of Tyrion 6, there's this quote. And certain knowledge of an informer, too. Well, that was the plum in his pudding. And, of course, the knowledge of the informer he's talking about is that Pycelle... you know, informed on him to Cersei. And the funny part about this is that uh, Tyrion, when he shows up for this dawn meeting with Pycelle, Pycelle serves him stewed plums, and Tyrion says, no, go send the letter now. The stewed plums will keep. So the fact that Pycelle was the one that proved to be the informer, well, the plum in his pudding, indeed. That's maybe a little uh, little nod to George, or by George there to, uh, I don't know, what do you call that? fruit to connections uh, yeah, <laughs> fruit parallelism sure. yeah so of course this is going to lead to the bye bye beardy scene we talked about a little while earlier you know Pycelle losing his beard uh so then he moves on to Littlefinger so that was his count of one talking to Pycelle so he goes to Littlefinger and uh Ned never tried <laughs> giving Littlefinger something right <laughs> he Ned uh, Tyrion gives Littlefinger this big offer of Harrenhal, which, you know, Ned just was so disgusted by Littlefinger, just kind of had to work with him, maybe work with him more than he had. Didn't probably have to work with him as much as he really did, but he felt like he had to. And uh, that's something that is important to kind of consider here, just the different ways that Ned tried to work with Littlefinger versus the ways Littlefinger tried to work with him. Uh, We get... A bit of news on Littlefinger's financial talents here, which I think is interesting. Uh, he's very skilled, and he's skilled in ways that, well, he's like a math expert in a room full of two-year-olds. Like, <laughs> Westeros is terrible at math. <laughs> I mean, our world is kind of bad at math in general. The U.S. is not very good at math. And that's part of why we have so many financial scandals in this country is because people are kind of unaware of of what's going on. And uh, I think that uh, little, this is, this, this effect is way bigger in Westeros because the average education level is way lower. The average interest in math is way lower. So Littlefinger is basically just like the proverbial kid with his hand in the cookie jar, but no one ever catches him. (laughs) He just can take whatever he wants from the cookie jar at all points without anyone looking at him or, or having any idea what he's doing. He also, Claims to have slept with Cat and Lysa. That's where this uh, you know comes up, and he reveals his disdain for Lysa. Uh, the offer of Marcella Sweet Robin legitimately kind of surprises him, and you love that line where he says, "If I gave her John Aaron's true killer, she might think more kindly of me." And Littlefinger is like, "True killer, huh?" Because <laughs> he and Lysa are the true killers. So <laughs> he's like, "Wait a minute, who do you think it is?" He's like, "Who are you pinning this on?" That's clearly not the real person (laughs) so he wants to know who Tyrion is going to force to take the fall (laughs) we also uh another thing that Tyrion has to offer here is uh which makes this whole uh, this whole thing seem very 
uh, authentic, which of course Tyrion is totally lying about nearly everything here, is that he can offer something to Lysa, which is that he can tell the clansmen to stop raiding them. So that we learn that Tyrion's arming of the clansmen is going pretty well for the clansmen and badly for the Vale. So he, that's something he can offer. He can say, look, if you join us, not only will you be you know, on the side where the winning side, uh, the side with more men anyway, at least from his perspective, but you'll lose, uh, you'll, you'll have this difficulty taken off of your uh, table, off your uh, plate for you. And of course, Tyrion wants revenge for the dagger, but he, he knows he has to wait. He can't do it yet. But as we know, that still hasn't happened. And according to the show, it never will. I'm not as sure about the show's take on that, but it's kind of hard to see how Tyrion would get Littlefinger back for that, given uh, how far apart they are later in the series. So, of course, that's two on his count of three. The third one is uh, talking to Varys. Now, this one goes a lot differently. Varys is just uh, a different kind of guy. He handles all this information differently. He handles the conversation differently. It's less adversarial. It's more, there's more about compromise and working together with Varys. Uh, with Littlefinger, it's very adversarial. With Pycelle, it's, you know, unequal in that Tyrion is lording over Pycelle and making him very uncomfortable. Whereas uh, Littlefinger is more equipped to handle Tyrion and has more uh, moves he can make. He's more formidable. Varys is also more formidable, but he isn't trying to be antagonistic towards Tyrion. He's trying to be more friendly towards Tyrion. They have this discussion that comes up that looms much larger later, which is the the idea that 50,000 Dornishmen are certainly worth one rabid dog. He says, my father will be the first to tell you that 50,000 Dornishmen is, is worth one rabid dog. However, he's not entirely right, is he? Tywin still is not eager to send Gregor's head to Dorne, even, after, even later. Uh, and of course, this is all going to get worse in terms of how angry the Dornishmen are because... Well, Oberyn's going to die, and they're going to be even more pissed. So Varys knows that Tyrion made Pycelle squirm, but he didn't actually reveal anything by word because the secrets were in a letter. So Varys couldn't see that or overhear it. But he did hear via his birds. Now, to be clear, or to be fair, Varys could have overheard Pycelle telling Cersei what was in the letter. It was spoken of. It just wasn't spoken of by Tyrion and Pycelle. But I suspect that Varys didn't hear Pycelle tell Cersei because Varys seems to believe what Tyrion told Littlefinger, which was said out loud. Uh, so because Tyrion or because Varys believes that the genuine offer was. Tommen to Dorne and Marcella to the Vale because he overheard Littlefinger and Tyrion talking about Tommen <laughs> or about Marcella going to the Vale. So he assumes that's the real offer. But we know the real offer is the one sent to, uh, is Marcella to Dorne because that's the only one that was actually sent. That's the only offer that was actually made. And it was the only one that was actually written. So when Varys says, oh, so you're going to send Tommen to Dorne by process of elimination, that must be it. And Tyrion doesn't correct him <laughs> when he guesses wrong. Also, Varys doesn't complain. Later on, 
Picel, of course, can't complain because he's in the black cells and Tyr- and uh, Littlefinger complains that he was lied to. He's like, leave me out of your next deception. Varys doesn't complain. He's like, okay, you know, you lied to me. I understand. <laughs> it's just, I'm, I'm lying to you sometimes too. We got to do that from time to time. <laughs> Varys brings up some other interesting points though. He says, Cersei is not going to allow you to send away both of her children. Indeed, that's true. Cersei does not allow that. Tommen is never sent off, except to hide at Rosby during the Battle of Blackwater, which Tyrion agrees should be done. Uh, Varys also makes the same point Bronn does about Tommen being more tractable, right? About how Tommen would be easier to rule through. And the reason I think this is brought up multiple times is because if Bronn notices it and Varys notices it, then other people have noticed it too. Like, say, hmm, the Queen of Thorns and maybe Marjorie Tyrell and uh, a lot of other people who have their mind uh, set on paying attention to politics and, and these kind of things. Interestingly, too, there's some similar language used. Check out this quote. Littlefinger looked like a boy who had just taken a furtive bite from a honeycomb. He was trying to watch for bees, but the honey was so sweet. And of course, in this case, the honey is Hall. He's like, hey, take Hall, and I'm going to make you Lord Paramount of the Trident. He's like, even over the Tullys? And he's like, yeah, over the Tullys. <laughs> so that is a very good metaphor because Littlefinger really, really, really wants that. So that's the, the honeycomb. But he also is like, this has got to be too good to be true. So that's the whole looking for, for the bees, the too good to be true part. And he's right. It is too good to be true. Tyrion is totally lying. But as we know, Littlefinger ends up getting Hall anyway. Uh, but Varys uses the same language. When he's, when he's putting himself in Doran Martell's place, he's like, you're offering a lot, but something more I would require before I should reach for this honeycomb. So he's using similar language, and I'm not entirely sure why, but it's probably just, to, you know, it's just George's way. I don't think there's anything more to it than that. It's just clever wording. We're moving on here to Bronn. Uh, training men for Tyrion. And it's interesting how good at it he is. He's very focused. Tyrion notices that there's all these like women walking around scantily clad and Bronn is not even giving them a, a, a glance. He's totally focused. And he's named, uh, we also find out that he's been named ca- captain of Tyrion's personal guard, which is, he seems to have earned it. He seems effective at it. He seems good at it. He maybe doesn't, you know, he's not the most moral guy, but <laughs> uh, I remember on TV, he's Lord Commander of the City Watch. And he does seem to have the rank of officer here. He's wearing an officer's breastplate. So he is like sort of a, maybe a consultant with an honorary rank. Uh, it's not, a, not entirely clear what his official rank is, but uh, he certainly has been given a lot of authority. Bronn notes Talad the Tall and how t- he's, he thinks how, I, I, you know, if, if he's the best you've got here in this group that I'm training, but look how he falls into a rhythm you know, he does the same strokes in the same order. That'll be his death if he ever fights me. So well, when you see lines like that, <laughs> when Tyrion says, you're not going to fight him, he's sworn to Joffrey. That's like standard George reverse psychology. However, I- I'm not entirely sure where Talad the Tall would, would go fighting Bronn. Currently, Talad the Tall is in prison as one of the patsies for sleeping with Marjorie. He didn't, probably, but Cersei is, you know, blaming him. On the other hand, uh, that and Bronn, of course, is now trying to be Lord Stokeworth and is opposed to Cersei. So maybe he will end up fighting Tal the Tall somehow in the future. Uh, Alistair Thorne comes up in this chapter as well. 
And uh, Tyrion says, oh, yeah, I don't want to see him right now. <laughs> Just uh, stick him in a stinky cell and make him wait, which is kind of sad because as much as we hate Thorne, he's got a very good reason to be there. And, well, when Thorne and Tyrion have their exchange later, we'll talk about that later. So Tyrion expresses disgust at the idea of marrying Lawless, and, and, and Bronn jokes about him with it. And uh, Lady Tanda wants him to come to dinner with that goal in mind. And we have a quote here. Send her my regrets. No taste for stuffed goose, Bronn grinned evilly. Perhaps you should eat the goose and marry the maid. Well, that's exactly what he does. Bronn does end up marrying Lawless <laughs> and uh, marrying her, <laughs> having a, trying to get her pregnant and all that. And of course, he names her child Tyrion, <laughs> which is part of the reason Cersei doesn't think too highly of him. Lady Tanda's table is described again as a, as a temptation. It's brought up because uh, Littlefinger is invited to it uh, a while ago, and then it comes up here uh, when Tyrion is trying to be invited is some food porn for sure, which is interesting because you have these really glorious, fancy meals described, and it's a juxtaposition to what's happening in most of King's Landing, which is people are not eating. Tyrion and Enoch is thinking about how the price of Bread has gone way up. There's no more greens and fresh fruits. And, and, and he's worried about what kind of meat they're serving at, uh, in the pot shops because he thinks it might be people. So uh, another very small but important note in this chapter is that uh, the Iron Bank shows up. It's, it's not even mentioned that it's the Iron Bank. Braun just says a moneylender from Bravos, which uh, we can be pretty sure there aren't other moneylenders from Bravos. I don't think the Iron Bank suffers competition in their own city, uh, considering just how violent and brutal they are. Yeah, I kind of doubt they would uh, tolerate that. So it's interesting that Tyrion just kind of dismisses them. He's like, yeah, I'm not worried about that. Send them to Littlefinger. That's not a good idea. Having Littlefinger do his uh, financial wizardry, which means embezzling and then, you know, by getting all this debt kind of sinking the Westerosi economy with the Iron Bank. You don't want that. But Littlefinger, but Tyrion hasn't figured out all how all this scheming financially just yet. He's he's starting to, but he hasn't gotten to the bottom of it yet. Eddard learns that Littlefinger borrowed money from the Iron Bank. So this isn't completely new, but it's it's a building story that hasn't gotten going yet. This eventually is of course going to lead to Tycho Nestoris giving Stannis money because the you know, starting with Tyrion and Ned and others, Cersei eventually just says, nope, we're not paying you. So the Iron Bank does what it does and goes and backs a new plan. Lancel is now a Sir. We find out Cersei is, is angry about the treatment of Janos Slint. And uh, we can kind of assume Lancel was promoted over the Cersei business. I mean, the Robert business. Well, the Cersei-Robert business, uh, the wine stuff. And uh, I'm guessing... They've just started sleeping together because uh, Tyrion thinks that Lancel is her, quote, new favorite here. So uh, it seems like it's probably started. Um, if it hasn't, it's about to. And within a couple chapters, we get confirmation of it. So, yeah, that's probably what's going on. I mean, Cersei's paranoid and she's, you know, feeling lonely. Anyway, more about that when we get to it more directly. Interesting here is is how little... Varys' spy network tells uh, has to say about Stannis. He admits that his spies are ominously silent. And you wonder if Varys is holding back. Maybe he does know some things about what's going on, doesn't want to say anything. But I would guess no, 
because again, Varus is very anti-Stannis. He doesn't want Stannis to win even a little. He's not uh, playing both sides when it goes to, when it comes with Stannis. He's playing both sides with other factions, but the one faction he's hard up to prevent is Stannis's faction. So I don't think he's failing to report on Stannis on purpose. I think there's legit reasons why Stannis is uh, able to prevent word from getting to Varus, probably because it's an island, right? You, you, he's got all the ships held there. He's not letting anyone leave, just like Balon isn't letting anyone leave. So I think it's just as simple as that. If this was an overland castle, it would be really hard to stop someone from sneaking out. But this is, uh, this is an island. So I think it's a little easier to, pe- to keep people from leaving. All right. Uh, good. Uh, a couple of thoughts here. Pycelle's mind very organized. Tyrion notes that uh, while he's looking at Pycelle's, you know, regents, his poisons and everything, he sees just how organized Pycelle is, which is, uh, you know, a little detail about the kind of person Pycelle is. He's a uh, we don't like him, but he's not a dummy. Um, <laughs> this is the uh, yeah. This is a lot of these things that we talked about here, not just. The thing with Pycelle, but, you know, going uh, to Shatayas and all these other things are the small amounts of things that he are, are making him effective in the short term, but they're going to come back to bite him in the butt when he goes to trial. Uh, even even uh, some of these things that he did for other people, like things that weren't for himself, are going to get turned around on him and, and uh, make it the realm is going to see them in a negative light, uh, even though he's you know, doing a good job. We get uh, Littlefinger's, a little more of Littlefinger's backstory here, which is uh, interesting. Um, it's a slow burn on Littlefinger's backstory. Mo- more of it comes up in A Storm of Swords when he's alone with Sansa and is a lot more forthcoming with his secrets. And we get an idea, too, of just how big a deal Littlefinger is. Like, all these, all the money stuff that he does when Tyrion thinks about him you know, buying wool and dyeing it and storing it, just all the different schemes he has, some of which are just standard profit uh, stuff. He's not just, uh, not just schemes, just some of it are just, you know, businesses. But the fact that he's just doing so much, which is part of what Tyrion thinks, he's armored himself in gold. It's like the realm, some, you know, no matter how untrustworthy he is, like Varus, it's hard to think of how they would do without him because of the money situation is so precarious. And without his quote unquote financial wizardry, they're worried about how badly it would go. They mentioned too, that Renly is dawdling that Tyrion's like, I'm not too worried about Renly in the short term because he's moving so slowly, showing his power, waiting for his enemies to weaken themselves, gathering more men, you know, et cetera. But you wonder if it wouldn't have just been better for him to just make a beeline for the capital, just go straight for it. Like kind of like Damon Blackfire did. Although I mean, Damon Blackfire took a while to get going. The, the Blackfire rebellion took over or approximately a year, but still he made a beeline for King's Landing when he could. And Renly could do that right now, but he didn't. And uh, well, if he had it to do all over again, he probably would have, but yeah, he doesn't have it to do all over again. So yeah. Uh, here's an interesting quote. The prince is a sentimental man and he still mourns his sister Elia and her sweet babe. That's from Varus. I didn't catch this. Joe Buckley points this out. He, he notes that it's singular babe, which might not mean anything because technically Rhaenys was seven and not a babe, but it might be a nod to only one of the children being dead, like a nod to Fagon. 
On the other hand, most of the fandom, including me and I believe Shea as well, doesn't think that Fagon is actually Rhaegar's son. I think most of us believe that both of the kids were killed. That doesn't mean Varys doesn't want to talk about it always and always as if. Yeah, you're right. For the case. You're right. That's yeah. true. So he could, it's just part of his, you know, keeping a lie up and all that. Uh, so anyway, and, and either way, Doran uh, definitely mourns this, all of them, <laughs> regardless of their ages and Varys's quotes. So yeah. Uh, hmm. Tubbs1971 says, it's a power move to stare with both eyes into one eye of the person you're talking to. Littlefinger and Tyrion both use this. Oh, okay, that's neat. I hadn't noticed Littlefinger doing that, but we'll keep an eye out for that in the future. Good comment from Tubbs1971. Uh, I took uh, did a little extra research on the drugs that Tyrion notes are. Here's the, the list, quote. He noted sweet sleep and nightshade, milk of the poppy, the tears of lease, powdered gray cap, Wolf's Bane and Demon's Dance, Basilisk Venom, Blind Eye, Widow's Blood. Sweet Sleep is the one that's being, uh, it's supposed to give you a dreamless sleep, but didn't work on Bran because his uh, green dreams and uh, powers were just too strong. It's being given to Sweet Robin uh, occasionally, and it's foreshadowed that he'll be overdosed on it. Uh, Nightshade is poison in this context, though it has a much broader definition in the real world. For example, technically bell peppers and tomatoes are in the Nightshade family, but so are a few varieties that people you know, trip on, like uh, hallucinate, uh, hallucinate, hallucinate. What did I say there? <laughs> but we haven't seen that in Westeros versions. So far in Westeros, nightshade is just poison only, but you know maybe it has other uses. Uh, milk of the poppy, of course, is Westerosi morphine, which is made uh, from the poppy straw of opium poppies in the real world, and presumably something similar in Westeros. Tears of Lease is straight up poison, of course. It's the one that killed John Aaron. Uh, powdered gray cap is poison made from toadstools. That's uh, sort of a real world thing. Wolfsbane is poison originally used to kill wolves. In the real world, people would take wolfsbane and mix it into meat and leave that out to uh, kill wolves. Uh, it would, you know, they would eat the meat and the wolfsbane would kill them. It has other uses in small doses. In, real, in the real world, it's been used for aches and pains. And maybe in Westeros, it is also used uh, for such things. But uh, that's not clear. Demon's Dance is not a poison. Just kidding. It's poison. <laughs> Fictional this time. Uh, Demon's Dance, not a real world one. Basilisk venom is just venom, so poison. As far as we know, i.e. it's an animal poison. Not to be confused with basilisk blood, which will be coming up uh, in A Storm of Swords. Blind eye is, well, we don't know what blind eye is, but it sounds like what they gave Arya at the House of Black and White. But it's probably just another poison, since everything else here is poison. <laughs> Widow's blood is, uh, well, a poison. But some people think Oberyn was giving this to Tywin, because it shuts down the bowels and bladder, filling a person with their own waste fluids, which that'll kill you. That would explain why he was in the privy long enough for Tyrion to find him sitting there, still waiting after all that time he spent, you know, talking and killing Shay. And like, Tywin's still just sitting on the can. It would also do a really good job of explaining why Tywin's corpse smelled so bad, because it's full of waste. Uh, it could be this is what Tyrion doses Cersei with in Tyrion 6. Given... Uh, the description is that Cersei is spent is is you know stopped up, shut down uh, that she can't uh, she's constipated or what have you. So shutting down bowels and bladder, maybe that's what happened here. Maybe he just gave her a very small dose of it. But on the other hand, the way he's looking at the the vials is he he lists off all those ones and then he finds the one he's looking for. So it seems like a different one. Anyway, in this scene, he only takes that one thing, just that one bottle. 
However, later when Shaga breaks down his door and cuts his beard and they send him to the dungeons, he takes several more vials and Pycelle is going to point that out at his trial. That he's, you know, it's going to look real bad for Tyrion. Pycelle's going to say, look, he stole a bunch of poisons from me and he's on trial for poisoning Joffrey. So this is going to look very bad later. Okay. Uh, that's all the comments for uh, this Tyrion chapter. Let's move on to Sansa 2. The one where Danto sends a note, a.k.a. the gang drinks true wine. A phrase repeated many times on this first page is the first line of the chapter. Quote, come to the godswood tonight if you want to go home. The way she reads it over and over reminds me of Danny in her fever dream repeating the phrase, wake the dragon. And in a sense, this is also an awakening of sorts. Danny awakens and is a kind of a different person and has this new sense of destiny and all that. It's not as epic or magical for Sansa, but this is an awakening in the, in the sense that she's got hope now, whereas before she had very little. Uh, so many of our young POVs are, are learning. They're losing some of their naivete gradually. Uh, Sansa's certainly no exception here. Quote, All her maids spied on her. She was certain. True. Very true. I mean, yep. <laughs> she's right to be suspicious of that. It's not paranoia. <laughs> it's just true. She's also lying better. Despite Sandor telling her otherwise, she is improving. She's getting better at lying. She's uh, practicing it and kind of understanding the ways to lie, like tell them what they want to hear, things like that. Um, and just like some of these other uh, chapters, uh, other characters, were the, a common theme here is people having trouble sleeping. Quote, She was wide awake when she heard the shouting, distant at first, then growing louder many voices yelling together. So she uses this commotion uh, as part of a, it, it tells her that she can maybe, it, it'll make it easier for her to sneak to the godswood when there's other stuff happening. Um, but we want to know what this is. Uh, the commotion Sansa hears is explained by Boros Blunt uh, right here. Quote. Some loose tongues spread tales of the preparations for Tyrek's wedding feast, and these wretches got it in their heads that they should be feasted too. His grace bled a sortie and sent them scurrying. <laughs> and Sandor uh, uh, maybe sarcastically says a brave boy. He doesn't say it sarcastically, but I think he's being sarcastic because this is not, <laughs> there's obviously nothing brave about heavily armed men attacking har uh, you know, starving unarmed peasants. There's not a thing, single thing brave about that. We get a, an even a different explanation, similar explanation from another point of view in Tyrion 5, quote, only three nights passed, another mob had gathered at the gates of the Red Keep, chanting for food. Joff had unleashed a storm of arrows against them, slaying four, and then shouted down that they had his leave to eat their dead. Yeah, so I think this is possibly a, se a separate incident, since one describes Joff leading a sortie, and this is him shooting arrows at them. I, I never really realized, like, Joffrey has already killed people at this point. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, He's like in the young. show, they have him kill, like, Roz by yeah. this point. I think it's by this point. Yeah, but I, yeah, he's killed Roz, which is like a notable thing. But here he's just killing people indiscriminately. Yeah, and he's younger too. Yeah, in the, in the book. So yeah, it's it's like, ooh, Joffrey sucks. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> very interesting. Now, assuming this is your first reread, but even if it isn't, uh, you can think back to the time when you had were reading the books for the second time. It's a very different experience seeing Dantos, what he really is from the start. When you know that he's paid by Littlefinger instead of thinking, oh, this guy is actually being kind of brave, or maybe at least thinking maybe this guy's being kind of brave. You may have been suspicious from the start on your first read, uh, but now you know exactly what's up. 
And it's all when you when you think about it from the perspective of knowing what's going on with Dantos and Littlefinger, it's so dirty and underhanded. I mean, the way Littlefinger spins it. <sighs> anyway, quote. The singers say there was another fool once who was the greatest knight of all. Florian, Sansa whispered. A shiver went through her. Sweet lady, I would be your Florian, Danto said humbly, falling to his knees before her. Why am I Florian in your thoughts? <laughs> Sorry, I just realized. I was thinking that when I was doing when I was writing it out like that. I was like, this is funny. I'm going to be Sansa and you're going to be Danto's. <laughs> so... Given all of Sansa's love for the tale of Florine and Jonquil, uh, and the fact that Littlefinger knows this, oh, how cynical. He is like, hey, so Don, this is what I want you to do. Bring up Florine and Jonquil. This is how we're going to really get this to work. It's like, oh, man. He's really playing on her like that. He's really taking advantage. Um, he, he, Littlefinger's probably coached him on a lot of things to say. Dante says he regrets doing nothing when they slew Eddard, but <laughs> Littlefinger's the one who... <laughs> made that happen so of course <laughs> this is such a lie and remember what we saw in uh the last john chapter which is that both gior and john talk about how you you know my father believed that you can't lie in front of a heart tree because the old gods will know here is dantos lying in front of a heart tree well to be fair it's not a real heart tree it's an oak with you know, it's not a it's not a werewood heart tree. It is called a heart tree, but it's not a, you know, old God's heart tree. It's an oak with dragon's breath growing under it. Mm, dragon's breath. The same tree that Sansa and Arya and Eddard spent the night under when they got news Bran had awoken. It was like they did a like a you know a thanks to the gods for that. <laughs> but uh <clears throat> the real risk here <laughs> to uh to Dantos or for Dantos and for Sansa here is this this fear. You know, he's uh he's scared. And uh, Sansa is right to be scared, too. Um, even though, I, I guess I didn't say that very well. My point is, Sansa is afraid. She doesn't know that Dantos is lying. But Dantos is not lying about, hey, if they catch us, we're both screwed. That's true, right? If, if, if any, even though Littlefinger's behind it all, they're taking real risks. That, that's not a lie. The fact that she's sneaking off to see him and getting receiving these notes and all that, that is legit risk. Uh, so, of course, in a story with Florian and Jonquil and Sansa, of course we have to have Sandor. Quote. It's a long roll down the serpentine, little bird. Want to kill us both? His laughter was rough as a saw on stone. Maybe you do. Yeah, and he knows, because that is probably a nod to Sandor noticing that Sansa was considering jumping off the bridge with Joffrey and killing them both, like taking them both over. So he's like, actually, maybe you do want us both to die. <laughs> uh, of course, Joss with Sandor, especially in his early chapters, his early appearances, it's a very common theme for him to mock knights and maids and uh, all that. And, but of course, there's also this knighthood theme of Sansa thinking about true knights and being saved and all that. Um, Boros Blunt being awful, uh, San uh, Sansa thinks about how he's the worst of the Kingsguard. And, of course, he calls Sandor Sir, and that sparks a brief exchange about who isn't and who isn't a knight, which is all very juicy because it fits this theme of who and who isn't a knight and what a real knight should do and how Sandor's being more, even though he's not really being very knightly here, he's far more knightly than 
Boros, or Dantos, and uh, all that. So he changes the subject um, a, a little bit later and backs her lie about praying, right? Like he says she's not a very good liar, but when she says to Boros that, oh, I was just going to the gods went to visit, and she thinks her lie was better this time. And Sandor backs her up. He says, what, do you expect her to sleep with all that commotion going on? What was that commotion? So it's a pretty, he kind of cleverly steers the subject away from her being uh, out of her room, which is, of course, like, why were you out of your room? But so Sandor just like steers the conversation away for that. So he's protecting her. He's, it's, it's nightly. It's not the, you know, standing in front of her with his sword and shield defending her from harm, but he is protecting her a little bit. Very subtle, but it's there. Uh, so in, in addition to Dantos and Sandor uh, dancing around the issue of knighthood and, and bravery and what it means to be uh, chivalrous and all these things, they're, even though they're both uh, kind of the opposite in so many ways, they're both drunk. <laughs> That's one thing they have in common here. And it's on true wine. I love this line. I don't know why. I think, I think it's so funny. Roy Dotrice reads it really well, too. So here we go. Quote. True knights, he mocked. And I'm no lord, no more than I'm a knight. Do I need to beat that into you? Clegane reeled and almost fell. Gods, he swore. Too much wine. Do you like wine, little bird? True wine. A flagon (laughs) of sour red, dark as blood. All a man needs. Or a woman. (laughs) It's true wine. I love that line. (laughs) Uh, And so he tells the... um, interestingly tells the Clegane origin story here, not his origin story, but the origin story of his house and the three black dogs and the yellow field. And uh, it's, it's one of the first mentions of Titos Lannister. Of course, we still don't get uh, much of an explanation of what kind of person Titos is, but we do, you know, the fact that he's a, a Lannister and the Lannisters always pay their debts. That part comes through because the reward to Sandor's family for saving Titos is, is large. Uh, you know, a promotion to nobility, tower house some incomes things like that and interesting there's a uh, a very good subtle foreshadowing for sandor and sansa coming together later whether it's romantic or not i don't know but them having some kind of relationship maybe maybe it's just protector and protectee some maybe it is romantic i don't know uh but there's some really cool fun connections here she thinks at one point in this chapter, she thinks how she wishes she had Lady with her with Dantos so that he says so that Lady could identify falsehoods. And then Sandor says in this very same chapter, the dog can smell a lie, you know. So it's kind of like, yeah, he's sort of auditioning to take Lady's place in a sense uh, without realizing it. And he says he'll get a song from her one day, whether she wants it or not. And well, she says she'll give it to her. He, she says he'll give him a song gladly, but he does force one out of her at the Blackwater. So maybe what that's telling us is that another one's coming, one when it's, you know, her choice rather than kind of threatened and, uh, out of her. And uh, also, the chapter ends with him saying, a hound will die for you, but never lie to you. Well, maybe he'll prove that to her. But to Joffrey, no. <laughs> he he did lie for <laughs> first to Boros, and he lied to Joffrey about the it's bad luck to kill someone on your name day. And uh, he 
does run off. <laughs> doesn't die for him. He, rather than face the flames of the Battle of the Blackwater, he's like, I'm out of here. So he lied and ran off. So he didn't die for Joffrey, and he did lie to him. But I think he would die for Sansa, and he won't lie to her uh, much in the future, um, assuming they come together, which I think they will. I'm definitely on that. I'm not on. I'm not sold on them having a romantic relationship, but them having a relationship. Yes. As for who put the letter there? Uh, well, probably one of the maids. Little. The answer is right there, even though it's not described. Sansa suspects all her maids of spying on her, and we know that the note was left by somebody, not Dantos, surely. So it's probably this one of the maids. But we don't know which one. So Sansa thinks about uh, Jane, and it's probably a mercy that she doesn't know what happened. Uh, yeah, and that's a good thing. I have Sansa, in this point in the story, still doesn't know what happened to Jane, even much later. Uh, so hmm. we hope Jane's in at least a decent spot by the, fine San- by the time Sansa finds out about what happened to her, but who knows. Uh, also, Sansa assumes Arya has made it back to Winterfell. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because she doesn't want to think about the alternative. But uh, Joe asks, and it's a good question, and I don't have an answer for her, at what point does she realize that Arya isn't actually at Winterfell? I'm, he, he's not sure it's ever explicitly explained, and I'm not either. Uh, I think that Sansa probably isn't aware that uh, Arya is not there. Well, she has to know Arya is not there by the time that Winterfell is sacked. But uh, yeah, yeah sure definitely by the Red either. Wedding. So Winterfell sacked. There's a Red Wedding. Like, yeah. What is she? I, yeah, I'm trying to think about what she thought about right then about Arya. Period. Like, yeah. If she's, she's like everyone died, but where's Arya? She may start assuming she's dead, just like she's assuming Bran and Rickon are dead too, because everyone else does. Uh, but yeah, but it's not. You're, you're right. I, I have a gap in my understanding of, of Sansa's understanding of Arya. So we'll have to keep an eye out for that. Joe also points out this interesting little uh, Sandor uh, detail, quote. Stripes of light and darkness falling across his terrible burnt face. Yeah, that's uh, very telling. He is a gray character. He has some light in him, some dark in him, and uh, that makes him pretty interesting. Also in this chapter, Valerian the Cat, and Valerian the Cat's appearance is right before she runs into Sandor. And I think Sandor and Balerion the cat have a lot in common. For example, uh, a missing ear, um, hating the Lannisters eventually, uh, you know, uh, having a kind of a... This, the cat rubs against her leg, and she's like, what's that? And the cat then hisses at her. It's kind of like the cat doesn't know whether it likes her or not, which is also kind of like Sandor's feelings for Sansa. He likes her, but he also, like doesn't like her <laughs> like little bird he mocks her but clearly is you know has a soft spot for her as well um so it's neat to see the kitty there um he'll turn up again of course we love that cat and uh but i really think it's meaningful that he run that she runs into him right before running into sandor oh the other great parallel between sandor and the cat is that he's a black dog and she's a black cat now why is he a black dog well as explained in this chapter the black dogs are the sigil the, it's, it's, it's a yellow field with three black dogs. The three black dogs that died in the yellow of autumn grass saving Tito's Lannister. Sadly, speaking of Arya and Sansa, she's still here blaming Arya for Lady's death, which 
I hope they clear that up one day and Sansa realizes that that's not Arya's fault. It's not fair to blame Arya for that. And I think when Sansa is a little older and has more uh, understanding of agency and her, uh, she'll realize that that it's silly to blame Arya. That was all Cersei. Cersei, 100% Cersei. And a little bit of Robert for not stepping in. So despite this being a Sansa chapter, uh, the audiobook is, you know, it's, it goes up and down based on the, who the voices are. Uh, you know, a young girl, Roy Trees can't do young girls very well. But on the other hand, his Dantos and Sandor are exceptional. I think they're really good, especially his Dantos. He does Drunk Man really, really well. It's one of the, I think it's one of the best voices he does in the entire series. And that's saying something because, I mean, think about how many voices there are to do in Song of Ice and Fire. Um, you know, it was Tree Girl and Stefan B from Flick who pointed out this uh, forced singing thing. So hat tip to them for uh, for that catch. Uh, but also, here's a very meta, meta, meta connection. Super meta. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. A lot of people have drawn this comparison. George R. Martin wrote for the TV show Beauty and the Beast, which you think about Beauty and the Beast, and it's like Sandor Sansa. It really kind of fits. Again, it's not necessarily that they're going to have a romantic relationship, but still, the parallels are hard to miss. And the parallels go deep. George, like I said, George wrote for the TV show Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast starred Ron Perlman, a.k.a. Hellboy, Linda Hamilton, a.k.a. Sarah Connor of The Terminator, and, wait for it, who was the other major star of Beauty and the Beast? Roy Dotrice. He was in every single episode. I love when I find little details like that and share to be able to share them with y'all. That was really fun. Like I'm, I'm I just learned that <laughs> like two days ago, and I was like, oh, that's so cool, and I immediately like rushed to share it with a few people. So very cool. Uh, Scott Wartman also notices the, this thing about Dantos's story to make it sound. He uses a little different language than I did. He says he makes it sound like a fairy tale to to make to tap into Sansa's, uh, you know, her her innermost desires and the way she kind of sees the world. It's very cynical. Uh, so damn you, little finger. Okay. Um, let's move on. Aria five, our one Aria chapter of the week, which is interesting, by the way, this is Aria five and she only, she has 10 chapters in this book and, uh, Tyrion has 15 and we're about to do Tyrion five. So that the pace of Tyrion chapters accelerates and the, ch- the pace of Aria chapters decelerates. But still, there's twice as many Aria chapters in this book than there were in the previous book. It's just interesting that we've already done, well, we were about, we're about to have finished half of them already, and we're only in part four of 12 of this run, and part one was only three chapters. So we're really in the first third of the book still, and Arya's had a whole half, half, half of her chapters. This one we have called The Gang is Captured by the Mountain, aka the one where Lamy yields. Uh... Well, we get Sir, she goes from Sir Amory Lorch, murderer of Rhaenys and many others, to Sir Gregor Clegane, murderer of Aegon and many others. Quote, When she climbed all the way up to the highest branch, Arya could see chimneys poking through the trees. Yeah, they seem to have completed their mission of destruction across the Riverlands, meaning Clegane and Lorch and all them. They're back near Tywin, who was close by at Harrenhal, which, of course, that's where they're all going to end up very soon. Clegane and his men mostly seem to be concerned with looking for Beric Dondarrion, uh, in addition to looking for loot, because they're always doing that. So Beric and Thoros and the Brotherhood Without Banners have been raiding the Lannisters, in particular Clegane's group. 
who was responsible for killing Barrick the first time, and he's also going to kill him the third or fourth time. <laughs> he kills him twice. Uh, Lorch, Hote, and Clegane all kill Dondarrion at least once. <laughs> so the three pet hellhounds, as, as Tyrion calls them, Tywin's pet hellhounds, each kill Dondarrion. Uh, when they find Lamy, they tell him he'll get a hot meal if they if he tells them about Dondarrion. And but Lamy has no idea what they're talking about. And when Gendry is captured, this is what happens. Quote: uh, Sorry, one of the spearmen snatched the helm off Gendry's head and asked him a question, but he must not have liked the answer because he smashed him across the face with the butt of his spear and knocked him down. So I assume that he was asking him about Dondarrion too, because that seems to be their primary concern. And he must have said, maybe he said something snotty, or, and that's why he got hit in the face with a spear. Uh, so Arya also, like I said, she's not only losing, like a lot of the Stark kids, slowly losing some of her naivete. She still has quite a lot of it, but she's gradually losing it, being out in the world, having to struggle to survive. But she's also just getting more skills. Uh, in this chapter, we see her her feet are are getting harder and you know tougher, like leather. And she's climbing really well and bravely, jumping from branch she's to like branch Bran. in her bare feet. She is like Bran. Yeah, she's like what Bran wants to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she forces herself to do uncomfortable things. Like she's not unlike so many other characters. She faces these dangers and makes herself deal with them. It's very different. Arya is just a just cut from a different cloth. She's just where when other people run from danger, she runs towards it. And when other people get scared, she buckles down and swallows her fear and, and tries to be as brave as possible. She she looks so so in this example, she's looking at corpses, just forcing herself to look at all the flies and crows and death. And she's willing to eat bugs. And she was willing to eat bugs when it wasn't a matter of hunger. She thinks about how she ate a bug once just to make Sansa squirm <laughs> you know like just for the just to get a rise out of her sister like ugh. and she's eating worms she thinks that worms are gross but it's better than hunger and then Lamy calls her worm breath and well that's setting something up right think of the house of black and white quote no one has ever tried to eat my worm before he said are you hungry child <laughs> Well, also, it, I mean, there's a strong association with worms and death. Yeah. And and uh, also being underground and, and uh, like in the caves and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, and that is a great segue to how a lot of Arya's arc walking through all this destruction, seeing all these dead bodies, trying not to be heard while walking amongst the dead. And all these other parallels with the undead invasion, like the language used, like when she's in the crowd for her father's execution, uh, many listeners noted how all the people around her were faceless and nameless. And it was written in a way that is like the dead are all around her and the black banners at night and and hiding below the earth from destruction, the smell of earth uh, when everything around her is burning and she gets worms in her mouth and all that destroyed towns, deserted landscapes, starvation, tough choices about hurt people. This is all going to happen again, but it's going to be worse. <sighs> a few of the uh, other people survived in the tower house. Um, Kurz, Tarber, and Cutjack. Lorch didn't have any patience to starve them out, uh, so they were still there. And uh, so Arya and Lamy and, and Weasel and Gendry and Hot Pie hook up with them. 
Uh, one of them dies of a wound he got during the battle, and the other two run off. And that's a good example. Those two guys weren't like great dudes, but they were brave enough to face Lorch, and they were brave enough to, uh, and they didn't, you know, they were helpful during the journey, finding food and and helping the group. But they're just not willing to save these kids, probably because they don't feel like they can, and it's kind of sad. But it's also not what Ari is willing to do. It's also a contrast. Gendry is also suggesting it. He's, he says, look, things are desperate. Lamy's going to die. We can't help Weasel. But Ari's like, no, we're not leaving people. That's not, how, that's not how we do it. And then Gendry realizes that she's a girl. And he asks, she has to admit who she is. Although she, for a minute, she considers killing her, which is kind of odd. But I don't know how seriously she was considering it, but it's more than a brief thought. But then she fully admits who she is, says she's a Stark and, and all that. And it's pretty funny how, how Gendry's just, you can see just how uh, deep it runs, like how you're supposed to behave around the nobility. Like he's mocking her and making fun of her. And then as soon as he finds out who she is, he's apologizing and he's so embarrassed. It just goes to show how nobles are just another species. They're like, like I've said before in other episodes, they're demigods. It's like you are considered on another level in ways that even in our modern society can't fully conceive of. Even with huge gaps in rich and poor and privilege in modern days, there's there's very little in modern times that can really uh, be a parallel to medieval peasant versus medieval lord just how different things are like having a whole set of laws i i i guess the laws thing but when i think about the the lowest of the low the most unfortunate in in the world and i compare it to a billionaire a millionaire that's i i don't know i think it's pretty close it's different but it's not overt it's not as overt the difference is like you said the law one of the things is the laws like yeah in the real world people get rich people get around laws they get away Mm -hmm. with breaking the laws but but we know what the law is and the law is different the law literally doesn't apply to yeah you know and that's so so yeah when it comes to laws when it comes to quality of life or whatever i'm not even sure about that i think you're right you have a point but i think that like westerosi lords their level of wealth is beyond billionaire versus poor person in common times i'm not entirely sure like we don't know exactly how yeah, like how that translates how, how like the currency translations and all that yeah. but i mean yeah their their level of wealth is just staggering <laughs> yeah just picturing someone who's starving with no technology all of that versus a billionaire who's like yeah, i just the, in yeah. general the yeah i'm not trying difference. to downplay how big the gap is yeah. i just think it might be even huger <laughs> yeah yeah so but you have a, you have a good point though for sure uh so um where were we yeah lami yielding uh lami's talk of yielding yeah it's 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 funny it's annoying and it's tragic all at once or or maybe at various points and the word yield comes up 20 times in this chapter but only 22 times total in Arya's a clash of king arc <laughs> so 20 of the 22 times the word yield appears is in this chapter for her <laughs> here's a quote Arya let her head droop, only half aware of what was going on around her. Hot Pie was yielding some more. <laughs> See, that's one of the funny ones. That's not tragic. Well, it's kind of tragic because Hot Pie and them are captured and, and the things that are being done to these captives is horrible. But that line is funny. It's meant to be a little comic relief because of all these horrible things that are happening around. Like Hot Pie is kind of like Dolores Ed 
He's supposed to be a little bit of comic relief for horrible things happening. Uh, later on, Arya is going to consider including hot pie in the weasel soup plot, but she stops herself thinking, eh, he'd only yield again. <laughs> so that's too funny. Uh, the one who kills Lamy is uh, Raph the Sweetling, and Arya gives him a, uh, a poignant, similar death in Mercy by cutting the cutting his carotid artery in his leg. Uh, carotid artery? I'm not sure if that's the right term, but cutting him in a place that you can't stop the bleeding. And then he says, I need help being carried or something to the effect. And she says, think so? <laughs> and gives him just very, uh, very perfect revenge. Um, it's Polliver who takes her sword. It's uh, Raph who kills Lamy, like I said. It's uh, Chizik who she tries to bite and then smacks her. And Chizik is one of the ones who gets killed by Jockin. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Arya gets him back pretty good. Um, and, of course, Polliver is going to be killed by the Hound later, and Arya takes Raph herself. More uh, thorough explanations on some of those when we get when I do the Where Are They Nows, because these are some characters that uh, we could expand on a little bit more. And there's some other ones that I didn't mention that we could expand on as well. But uh, let's keep going. Arya, interestingly, Joe points out that Arya wants to kick Yorin. She has this reaction. She's sad that he's dead, but she also has this, this anger, this frustration. She wants she almost kicks his corpse because she's mad that he didn't take her home. And it's the same thing. She finds Desmond's body, and she almost wants to kick him as well. That was earlier. Uh, it's the same thing. He was going to take me home. So, hmm, yeah. Uh, it's very clever how George puts these two chapters back to back. In Santa 2, we get the Clegane symbol being explained. And right here, we have Arya recognizing the Clegane sigil. Uh, and that's kind of a connecting point. Uh, it's like a clever way for George to be very um, economical with his descriptions. Uh, it's, it's easy to forget that Arya came out of King's Landing actually pretty well, even though she was you know, dirty and, and scabby and, and underfed. She was ostensibly in a group of Night's Watch who normally get left alone. You know, Yorin's experience was that they get left alone. So it looked like she was in good shape to get home. No one knew where she was. She had food, reasonable protection, but that's just gone. Like a lot of these small folk all around her, just their lives just gone all on a whim. On the They did nothing wrong, but... They're being blamed for being traitors uh, because Beric took stuff from them. They didn't give it, but because their stuff went to the enemy, they get blamed for it. It's really the ultimate in injustice, being blamed for something that they couldn't have possibly stopped from happening. And on top of that, things are just being burned for the hell of burning. Part of Tywin's strategy is just this destruction. And it's both effective, but also short-sighted. Uh, Tywin is it's the exact same thing we were talking about in the north Bolton wants the Hornwood lands no matter whether they're full of people or not it's the power of controlling them whether the Riverlands is burned starving or not what matters most to Tywin is that they control it <laughs> the state it's in is secondary to who owns it and uh so you see that he's willing to completely destroy it and make so many people suffer to keep control over it. So again, it's about the territory. It's about the land and the, the 
glory you know, of saying you own it. Not you know, George. You know, Aziz. It's almost like George is trying to make political commentary here. <laughs> it's almost like a song of ice and fire is intrinsically political. <laughs> it's almost like song of ice and fire was written by an anti-war liberal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Joe points out an interesting thing here. I hadn't thought about. Don't think he says, don't think I could ever recall a time when I thought Arya might be, might eventually win through and return home. But for many first timers, I doubt they expected another book and a half of her essentially wandering the Riverland either. Yeah. That's a good point. Like maybe you don't know where she's going to go and you maybe don't see Bravos coming, uh, until she gets the coin and it's like, hmm, maybe she's going to Bravos. But before that, it it may it's it is hard to see where she's going. You know, like how is she going to get out of the Riverland, and where is she going to go if she does go, and what's she going to do once she leaves the Riverland? So I don't know. Uh, John Hagee asks if there's any connection or nods or any sort of tinfoil to do with Lamy and Garth Greenhands. Lamy Greenhands, you know, compared to the mythical figure Garth Greenhands, it could be a nod. I, I don't. I couldn't find anything too direct here. Uh, Do we know where Lamy's from? I believe he's just from Kingsland. Okay. I think he's just. I want to know if he had any reach heritage. Yeah. Uh, if he does, I'm not aware of it, or maybe, or maybe I missed it. I mean, sure, there's plenty of people that live in King's Landing that are from the reach. Yeah. So I did a little bit of research. You know how I am. I have to look these little things up. I learned about green dye. Green dye used to be made with arsenic in the real world. Victorian English gowns, you know, this, this, the, the, this, the phrase like when someone looks really good, you're like, oh, you're slaying. Oh, you kill in that dress. That's a dark history to that phrase because green dye was li- could literally kill the people that were making it. Uh, Victorian England in particular, that's where that slang apparently came from. Uh, yeah, that dress is killer. Yeah, it literally could have killed people being made. So, woof. And of course, there's the thought that it still has arsenic on it, you know, even, you know, even later. And so it's kind of a, you know, like a a joke that the dress itself could still have enough arsenic to kill someone in it. But uh, so I have sympathy for Lamy, even though we don't know for sure that dying in Westeros uses arsenic. He doesn't have the health issues described uh, by arsenic poisoning. Like it makes like your skin bubble up and get your hair fall out it's really bad so i don't see this in lamy but still it's a bad job like he has a permanently green arms because he has to do this it's a terrible job and so i think he george is pushing some boundaries by writing lamy in a way that we struggle with him it's like you kind of you find him annoying but he's a kid and it's it's like how much am i really gonna hate a kid you know you you got to feel some sympathy for him for his terrible upbringing and his crappy life and I think, and it made me think about the way the story is delivered. When you're reading the book, I think you have maybe a little more sympathy for Lamy than when you're listening to it. And that's, again, because of Roy Dotrice. Arya's chapters are a bit of a problem, like Sansa's are, because, well, Roy Dotrice, his weaknesses are women and children, because he's an older guy. He does a lot of male voices awesome. And some of the women voices are okay. But the point here is, I'm not trying to drag Roy's women and children voices. My point is that Lamy doesn't sound like a child on the audiobook because it's Roy Dotrice's voice. I would feel worse for him if it was an actual kid, or at least if it sounded like a kid, because sounds are powerful, y'all. Music is an obvious example of how powerful it can affect your emotions, but the sound of a child's voice, it's really powerful too. And that can pull at the heartstrings. So if it was Lamy, like a kid's voice saying, you know, uh, talking about like, don't leave me and all this other stuff and being sad, like that would hurt more. Like that would feel that more. 
there is at least the TV show now where I can picture Lamy in the show. Yeah, so I honestly can't me. think of how his voice sounds. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's the same. It's you're right. That's a good example of where we can at least kind of get the the close. Uh, Nina also points to one thing I, I, I pointed at the beginning. It's not just uh, she uses a different language, but it's this kind of a similar point. It's that she just won't leave people behind, even when it seems hopeless. Like she goes back to find Yoren, even uh, even when like Gendry, who's fairly brave is like, now nah, let's not do that. And she calls it pure hearted. I think uh, it's a good way to put it. Like she is, it's like her father. She's noble. She's and it's another similarity between her and Leanna, the aunt she never really knew. Uh, well, not really didn't know <laughs> at all. Uh, Sir Slorp, $5 super chat. Valerie Reedus is the best series on YouTube right now. Thank you, Pat, uh, Sir Slorp <laughs> unrelated question. Have you been watching this season of sunny? Oh yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. we have. <laughs> we would not miss Can't it. Can't wait for sun- for Wednesday. Yeah, we and, love uh, Sunny. I was telling them in the chat that the most recent episode, The Gang Chokes, was my favorite of the season so far. <laughs> I think The Gang Gets Romantic has been my favorite of the season so far. But like A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm going to have to go through it more than once before I decide. Many, many, many times we <laughs> yeah. watch these episodes. Oh, They're... let me tell you. <laughs> countless times we watch these episodes. Yeah, Sean, too. Sean loves it as much as we do, so... Yeah, we are, we are a question. sunny household. Yeah. <laughs> it's always sunny in the big house. <laughs> or so in the house to of Westeros in this case, I guess. <laughs> All right, that's it for Ari 5. Let us go to Tyrion 5. The one where they argue about Marcella, a.k.a. the gang, prepares the wildfire. Tyrion's counting to three plan manifests. He and the reader both get a lesson in wildfire from Helene, who was played by Roy Detrice on HBO meaning he played him twice, since he obviously did the voice acting for Helene in the audiobook also. Double Helene. However, it's his voice in the audiobook for Helene is a lot different than his, <laughs> you know, like his kind of over-the-top, like, pyromancer that he did in the show, which I enjoyed. I'm, I'm not using over-the-top as to denigrate it, but it was, it was different. <laughs> so Tyrion is under the Hill of Rainies again. After being there just two chapters ago, uh, Jocelyn Bywater continues to prove a solid choice as Lord Commander of the Gold Cloaks, and Cersei continues to berate him. Quote. They had warmed him to dress warmly. And indeed, that quote, again, seems very small, but it's uh, a thesis statement for Tyrion's chapter because he listens. The point about this, that opening line, and it's repeated later, he says, you told me to dress warmly, I dressed warmly. You tell me to be careful with wildfire, well. And this, this part of the chapter it's just very satisfying. Wildfire from the wildfire tour to the empty jars test plan where he thinks through how to make sure the men do a good job. It's just it's like seeing a job well done from the very clear commands he issues to Jaslyn Bywater to the way he thinks through the problem and to the way he listens to people who know what they're talking about. It's just like oh, I wish more leaders behaved like this. Not that I'm complimenting all aspects of Tyrion's leadership but this particular thing the handling of the wildfire jars and that whole thing is just like yeah it's just it's just like I said very satisfying to see a job done right uh and and even and it's important to consider that he's listening to people in their respective areas of expertise even though he doesn't fully trust them he knows Helene is exaggerating for example quote the substance was the pyromancer's own term for wildfire they called each other wisdom as well, which Tyrion found almost as annoying as their custom of hinting at the vast secret stores of knowledge that they wanted him to think they possessed. Once theirs had been a powerful guild, 
But in recent centuries, the maesters of the Citadel had supplanted the alchemists almost everywhere. Yeah, and the decline of the pyromancers was worsened a bit more at King's Landing because, well, Jamie. <laughs> he killed three of their top guys when he killed Ares. He was Bellis, Garrigus, and, of course, Rossart. But the return of magic is reversing that downward trend for them a bit. As we see later, they exceed their production estimates from this chapter, getting ahead of schedule even. Tyrion's already concerned they were rushing, so this kind of startles him. He's like, don't rush. And are you lying to me? Like he's, because Haley, he knows Haleen is willing to exaggerate. He's uh, takes that with a grain of salt. But it looks like Haleen's telling the truth. And Haleen is like, hey, are there dragons now? Because our spells are working better. And in this chapter, Tyrion thinks about how spell from them is likely an exaggeration. For example, when he when he when they talk about the the floor counterweight thing that drops sand on uh, a wildfire spill, they he calls that a spell. And Tyrion's like, "Yeah, spell. It's just some counterweight system." He knows better, but it's the same whole trappings of power slash making. Uh, technology seem like magic or exaggerating the power of something to make it seem magical. Haleen does this uh, several times and Tyrion's well aware of it. And uh, of course, in terms of reversing their downward trend, of course, the Battle of Blackwater, that's great press for them. It shows that they are powerful, that they're, that ever, surely everyone in the realm heard about the wildfire explosions, that the, the whole that Blackwater was green fire. That was a, that's a, that's a big story. That's a, great rumor for people to talk about so the pyromancers love that press <laughs> um but uh let's think about this a little more um the way this is going right this is setting up a lot wildfire is found 200 jars beneath the great sept of Baylor, and later in this book 300 more jars are going to be found so it's telling you that oh uh, well surely there's probably even more that still hasn't been found. The mention of 200 jars beneath the Great Sept of Baylor, just you can't not think of the TV show and the Sept blowing up there. Now, I do not think the Great Sept is going to blow up specifically as a Cersei plot in the books. No, I really don't. But wildfire explosions in King's Landing under other circumstances, 100% yes, 110% yes. And it's set up by, quotes like this one as it ages the substance grows ever more hmm, fickle let us say any flame will set it afire any spark too much heat and jars will blaze up of their own accord it is not wise to let them sit in sunlight even for a short time once the fire begins within the heat causes the substance to expand violently and the jars shortly fly to pieces if other jars should happen to be stored in the same vicinity, those go up as well, and so... So think about it that way. Just any undiscovered, these undiscovered wildfire caches that are probably still out there, Haleen is telling us that they're just getting more dangerous. The longer they sit there, the more dangerous they get. Direct sunlight can set them off? Sunlight's not that hot. Meanwhile, dragon fire is almost the hottest substance known to humankind. So <laughs> it really isn't hard to see how a little bit of dragon fire could just do a huge amount of damage. And that could both explain why Danny doesn't seem to be on an arc to intentionally destroy King's Landing, even though 
there is a lot in her arc that foreshadows King's Landing being destroyed. But she's also thinking about how she doesn't want to do that. There's also very direct quotes from her like, I want King's Landing to be, you know, nice and blah, 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 all these other things. So, but of course, we also have Tyrion involved in all of this. He yes. does know about the wildfires. So you got to wonder what what his role is. We've gotten into this before, but I mean, we're talking about Tyrion, Danny, and wildfires. So. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is this is a right getting right to the heart of it. I think, uh, even though we, we don't have all the answers, but we do have most of the elements that George is going to be playing with for this plot line later. We don't know what he's going to do with it, but we at least have like a lot of the big pieces. We just don't know how they fit. Uh, and whose motivation, who's going to be blamed, who's like, you know, what Danny's agency will be in all this, John Connington's aspect of this, all that. There's a lot. Um, so it's a little bit of humor here. Of all, it, it ties uh, the two two of the plot lines in this chapter together very nicely. Of all escorts Tyrion could have chosen for visiting the pyromancers, quote. Given his purpose today, it had seemed a singularly appropriate choice for his guard. And he means the burned men, <laughs> of course. But it, like I said, there's a double meaning here. He chose them not just because of the, the joke, but because they're his scariest looking men and the crowds are getting more and more aggressive given the building hunger and unease and paranoia of the general populace. And aiding to that paranoia are dudes like this street preacher who calls Tyrion a twisted little monkey demon. Tyrion is called a monkey a lot in the series. That's a line that comes up many times. Now, so there's uh, there's more analysis to be done there. So we'll continue to keep an eye out for the specific times when it's called to see, uh, he's called that to see what other kind of patterns we can pick out. Uh, of course, the monkey's tail is a big part of that reference. Remember, uh, the Azorahai myth contains one particular uh, version of the Azorahai myth. And I'm forgetting which nationality it is. Uh, it's one of the Far Eastern uh, cultures that says that the uh, Long Night was defeated in part because of Yee-ti. a woman. Is it Yeah, okay. it's Yee-ti. Cool. Uh, Yee-ti says that. It's Yintar. That's Yintar, the yeah. woman. You can always remember by her name. Right. Very good. Good job. Uh, thank you for catching that. Um, so the, the line is basically the 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 darkness was defeated by a woman uh with a monkey's tail or something like that right mm-hmm. yes. so the monkey being the the key part here and that being a connection with her and Tyrion uh Danny and Tyrion the connection so that's pretty big but also the street preacher reminds us of the shepherd from the dance of the dragons uh and others like the one in the mystery night preaching against blood raven ah blood raven's coming up a lot today oh you know i'm wearing a blood raven shot first shirt today yeah. thank you to pat doherty a bunch for of the people shirt. were really appreci- appreciating it in the beginning of the episode oh cool well pat good job on this shirt <laughs> this, is a, this is a really good shirt he gave it you gave it to me at an ice and fire con pat is very much uh team damon blackfire he's a blackfire supporter he's got some very good uh debate points as to to cast some shade on blood raven and others but that is quite off topic, so another time for that. And of course, there's several other preachers mentioned in Fire and Blood. So this the paradigm, the paragon or climax of, of perhaps this archetype is the High Sparrow himself. Um, sort of. I mean, he's not a crazy street preacher, but he's kind of in that cut from that cloth where he uh, preaches against power and he's a commoner and a lot of people listen to him and he's, and he's causing unrest. But he's a lot cleverer than this street preacher, <laughs> let's, be, let's be sure. Very importantly, uh, the comet is mentioned again. We hadn't heard about the comet in a while. It's mentioned a ton in the early chapters, but it sort of fades to the background a little bit here. But he's he's talking about it. This preacher is talking about it, and he's yelling. Here we go again. Wildfire, Danny, 
John Connington, King's Landing burning. He's yelling about fire coming to King's Landing. Could mean dragon fire, could mean wildfire, could be both. Either way, he's talking about King's Landing burning. And there we go. But And this is interesting, too, because at this point, George downplays this because people are booing the preacher. People, mo- like some people are supporting him, but Tyrion notices that most people are not buying it. So he's not that bothered by it either. Cause he's like, okay, well, at least they're not listening to this guy. But this is also an upward trend. Over time, more and more people are going to start listening to this kind of talk. More and more people are going to get desperate and paranoid. And even though Tyrion's not bothered by it now, it's going to be a problem for him later because we're not long before we start seeing people just start blaming Tyrion for things because of what he looks like, because he's the imp. And they start excusing Joffrey, blaming Tyrion for Joffrey's behavior. And uh, that's just not very fair, is it? But it's it's where we're headed. And uh, this is the kind of the beginnings of that, of what leads to the riot and these other problems. Cersei, on the other hand, not learning the lesson of uh, the thing they talked about with Stannis. And, um, you know, if you tear someone's tongue out, you only prove you fear what they have to say. Cersei didn't learn that lesson. In the next chapter, she imprisons this street preacher and several others. Tyrion is annoyed by that, but he thinks it's too small of a point to argue. But uh, it's that same point about, you're, you're just proving that you're just giving more credit to their words by saying that you fear what they have to say. One thing I didn't think about enough was giving credit to Stannis for some of this. I, I really focused on how much fear of the war and paranoia and starvation were driving, uh, and just like hatred of Tyrion and, and things like that, were driving uh, the unrest. But let's not forget that Stannis's letter was read to the commoners and talked about the incest quite a bit and how that is a big issue. And that's one of the things the preacher brings up is the incest. So you got to give Stannis a little quote unquote credit for uh, preparing the way for his invasion by um, making things difficult for the Lannisters. Cleos Frey arrives with the peace offer. Now we don't need to talk about the peace offers because the peace offers are just show uh neither side has any intent of accepting the other side's peace office peace offers they're both ridiculous but of course the escort to bring cleos back is very important because even though he doesn't tell cleos what he's doing is sending uh a a breakout break jamie out of prison squad uh and hiding them amongst cersei's guards who she's sending to uh as a decoy um Tyrion notes that having a bunch of having you know a couple of dudes escort Cleos they're going to be watched but if it's a hundred dudes escorting Cleos they won't all be watched and so he's going to hide his secret dudes within that group of a hundred uh and we're already seeing food shortages um we're already starting you know in the riverlands of course and uh, we know that here in King's Landing that the food shortages are starting but we don't exactly know or Tyrion doesn't exactly know how bad it is, but Cleos tells him. He tells him it's real bad. And uh, so I don't think Tyrion knew that it was as bad as it was. And this has yet another indirect impact. As there's more starvation in the Riverlands, more people go to King's Landing, and many of those are young men, and many of them sign up 
to be soldiers in either the City Watch or the Lannister Army because that's a way to get a place to sleep and food to eat. Like, that's a way to cease living the life of a refugee. So this is part of the ruthless effectiveness of Tywin Terranhal's strategy. We've talked about the pros and cons of his strategy. This is something that is uh, working for him. In a very, and yet again, it's a cynical, ruthless, immoral strategy. But it's hard to say it's not working because all these starving people that are being sent out of the Riverlands, a lot of them are joining his army. That is so unjust, but it is what's happening. And Tyrion doesn't want Rob to know about the hunger in the city, though. Even though the, these men coming in are actually helping, they're not fully helping because that's not all of them are joining, and a lot of them are, are able-bodied men. So there's still the issue of hunger, even though some of it's abated by making some of them soldiers. Uh, so Tyrion doesn't want that part known because he doesn't want uh, that weakness exploited. Uh, but Rob does realize that sitting around is helping Tywin more than it's helping him. Rob thinks about that. It points that out in the next Catelyn chapter that, yes, yeah, sitting here isn't the worst thing, but it's helping Tywin more than it's helping us. So we got to do something. And that's part of why he decides to attack West. It's attack Tywin's base. Um, so it's not clear whether part of his decision was realizing that the starving men in the Riverlands were more likely to join Tywin's army than his. Uh, but it's quite possibly part of that calculus. So Tyrion is getting more blame than Cersei uh, for a lot of this, which is kind of unjust, but uh, she's a big part of the next chapter and, uh, or sorry, the next part of this chapter, which is the final part of the chapter, which is their negotiations over uh, Marcella and Dorne. Now here's where Cersei's got some points. Given what Tywin and Gregor and Lorch did to Elia and her children, you can understand why Cersei doesn't want Marcella sent down there. Like, we killed their kids. Don't send our kid there. So, I mean, she's got a point. <laughs> and he says, Tyrion's like, I promise you, nothing will happen to Marcella. Oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cersei was right. Tyrion, I guess he kind of he kind of made it worse for her. It was like, uh, uh, you know, like a jinx there. He said, Tyrion, he's he's like, I promise you, nothing will happen to Marcella. (laughs) Whoops, yeah, sorry. Uh, And again, we got to come back to this point about them being more tractable. So, meaning Tommen. Imagine if they had sent Tommen down there, like what Varys was thinking that Tommen was going to be sent down and Tyrion doesn't correct him, but that's not a good idea. Like, that's an even worse idea than sending Marcella down there. I mean, crowning Marcella, that's one thing, because most of the realm will just say, hey, that's not even legal. But if they were to crown Tommen, well, that is legal. Tommen is next in line. And if they control him, just like Renly said, you controls the heir or he controls the king, controls the kingdom. And so sending Tommen to Dorne would have been a mistake. Um, but but that wasn't actually ever on the table. It was just one of part of Tyrion's smokescreen. However, I think someone could have realized that it wasn't Tyrion. Like, Varys might have been able to figure out that that wasn't really Tyrion's intent by thinking it through more and being like, wait, would you really send them down there? Uh, Anyway, it's possible that Varys was actually pretending to not know the truth. I think that's a a reasonable interpretation of Varys' telling Tyrion that, oh, yeah, you were going to send Tommen to Dorne. Yeah, that's clearly the conclusion. He might have been playing along and letting Tyrion think he, he was fooled. 
this is something to consider as well. So they discussed the situation uh, with regard to the war, uh, meaning him and Cersei. Tyrion tries to assuage Cer- Cersei's feelings on it. He, she doesn't know uh, a lot of the details, and she doesn't like that Tywin is sitting there waiting. She thinks it's inaction. She thinks it's cowardice. But as we just explained with Rob's take on the situation, and Tyrion says some of the same things, no, waiting is actually to our benefit. It's helping us more than Tywin. Cersei doesn't believe Tyrion. She's like, you're just making all this up, aren't you? But no, Tyrion's telling the truth. Although he does leave some details out, mostly to keep her from being paranoid. Tyrion doesn't want her to be calm and collected, but he also doesn't want her to be too paranoid. It's again, it's a tightrope walk. Uh, he points out that they have a new host forming in the West, but doesn't mention that the North is probably active as well, which we've been seeing in branch chapters. Indeed, things like ships are being built. <laughs> so the North is also uh, using this time wisely, even though Rob's campaign in the Riverlands, the waiting isn't great for them. That's a separate issue than what the rest of the North is doing in this interim. Uh, <clears throat> so we also find out through this conversation uh, that. Tyrion, uh, that Pycelle leaked Cersei. We know that. And he never actually often offered Tommen to Lysa. Though, it's, it's an interesting what-if to consider if Doran had rejected the Marcella offer, which he probably never was. It was a really sweet offer. And he loves the idea of getting Marcella in his hands. If, for some reason, he had rejected it, maybe the Tommen-Lysa thing, or Tommen-Sweet uh, Robin thing would have happened. But that's weird. Or rather, Marcella-Sweet Robin. That could have been like his backup plan, but we never get to that point. Now, to be fair to Cersei, she's really upset with how much Tyrion is uh, doing uh, without her and how he's not, you know, making her a part of these decisions. She's kind of got a point. He does the chain, the wildfire, the marriage to Dorne, the getting rid of Janice Slint, all without her knowing anything about it. Um, Not that I am advocating that Cersei should have more control, but from her perspective, She's got something to complain about. Well, he is leaving her out of these decisions. I mean, Tywin wanted her left out of these decisions, so there is that. But like, if we're trying to understand her perspective and her frustration, well, she's got a little bit of a point. Joe Buckley wonders uh, what would have happened if Joffrey had been allowed to play with wildfire. Tyrion's like, yeah, we got to not let, let's keep this on the down low a little bit. Don't let Joffrey find out about this stuff. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Joe also wonders, uh, we, because of the talk in Fire and Blood about subsellers, uh, and, in, and in this chapter in the Pyromancer's Guild itself, about uh, being built around King's Landing, and uh, he wonders if some of those were commandeered by Ares for some of these wildfire caches, which is entirely possible. That might be where some of those uh, undiscovered caches are still hiding. Um. We get the first little, like I said, this is, uh, I didn't mention the Faith Militant, but I did mention the, uh, the, the, the High Sparrow, so it's kind of similar. Now, uh, Joe quoted this here. This is a good one. The gods alone know what side they started on, but they're on their own side now. Yep, that's, Joe says, how, points out the similarity to that in the Broken Man speech, which is like, ooh, you can't even say Broken Man speech and not make me go, oh. But he's right, that it's not just the, the, the mentioning of that speech, but it's, it is a good parallel. All these people just have nothing to do. They're, they've, been, they've been abandoned by all the nobility, um, and uh, they're, they're kind of helpless. They, their best bet is to band together to form their own source of power, their own uh, you know, bit of protection, what little they can have. 
the Pyromancer's Guild Hall. That sounds like a really neat place. I like the world building stuff and the way George describes it. Quote, The gallery of the iron torches, a long echoing chamber where columns of green fire danced around black metal columns 20 feet tall. Ghostly flames shimmered off the polished black marble of the walls and floor and bathed the hall in an emerald radiance. And I said it's a cool place, but it's literally cold. And that's, you know, for obvious reasons. You hear about how even a little bit of sunlight can can uh, touch off the wildfire. You can understand why they keep it very cold. And uh, Tyrion's wearing the shadow skin cloak he got in the Mountains of the Moon. But the way that's described, you have wildfire and black stone, emerald radiance, polished black marble. That is Tyrion's eye colors. Tree Girl from Flick points out that the glass candles of the Citadel are also black and green. And uh, she wonders what kind of ancient books the pyromancers have lying around, which touches on a comment that Nina had, which is she's wondering about their origins. And so do I. There's a bit of a gap in our knowledge there. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're explained in the world of ice and fire a bit, but we don't get their origins. Oh, we get kind of a shadowy history that they've, they've existed for a long time. But where did they start? Where did they begin? Uh, and, you know, who founded them? You know, anything like that, we're, we're missing a lot of that. Uh, one guess is from Nina is that they started in lease. Um, another one is, uh, you know, any one of the free cities are possible candidates. Maybe Mir, because they're Do big on think- technology. Do you but, think they originally came from a manse? A manse? Yeah, they're pyromancers. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had to start somewhere. Probably not a shack. They're, they're not pyro shackmers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now we know. Uh, so yeah, we really, one day maybe we'll learn a little more about their history. But yeah, it is a, there is definitely a gap there. Can't skip over the humor in this chapter. Quote, Tyrion Lannister could not have been more astonished if Aegon the Conqueror himself had burst into the room riding on a dragon and juggling lemon pies. That is uh, pretty astonishing, (laughs) that thought. Of course, it's because Cersei is crying. And then there's more humor here. When your sister cries, you were supposed to comfort her. But this was Cersei. Yeah, that's that's good. <laughs> but this was Cersei. <laughs> and indeed, he tries to comfort her and she's like, don't touch me. And he feels bad. He's like, oh, man, see, I shouldn't have done that because now I feel awful. She doesn't see me as a human being. And uh, this might be foreshadowing, quote. His cheeks still throbbed where Cersei's hand had left its mark. Let her flay half my face. It will be a small price to pay for her consent to the Dornish marriage. Oh. Tyrion doesn't lose half his face, maybe more like a third. But Marcella loses some of her face, too. So, like, the Dornish marriage combined, they lose about half a face. Yeah, something like that. We'll have to ask someone who knows more about flayed faces. Let's look at the Boltons and the Faceless Men to uh, weigh in on this one here for us. We'll let y'all know what they say in a future episode. All right. Our last chapter of the day is Brand 3. It's a short chapter, but it packs a punch. There is a lot in this chapter. It's the one with the Harvest Feast, a.k.a. the gang meets the reeds. The first line is... The dancer was draped in bardings of snowy white wool emblazoned with the gray direwolf of House Stark, while Bran wore gray breeches and white doublet, his sleeves and collar trimmed with vair. Yeah. Now, Joe Buckley had a great comment that Tyrion's impact is really big here. Bran's ability to ride is a huge thing keeping him from being a lot more depressed. And if he couldn't ride, he would be even more cooped up in, in, in his uh, 
bedchamber and just with his lack of mobility. So it's important to remember that is, is, you know, as sad as Bran is, he'd be a lot sadder without Tyrion's influence. And this is, uh, I mentioned this here because right off the bat here, we have Dancer, uh, Bran's horse, and he's uh, riding on him to start off. After all the destruction of crops and this war of, of food and uh, in the Riverlands, it's the starvation. It's kind of, it's almost like a siege of the entire region. It's quite a juxtaposition to see things like Lady Tanda's table, but even more, this feast laid out here. This isn't the first, uh, but it's the f- first description of food that's really long. This is a 134-word description of food. We're not going to read the whole thing. Just hear this brief quote here to start us off. Such food Bran had never seen. Course after, after course after course so much that he could not manage more than a bite or two of each dish. Okay, so 134 words long. Maybe it doesn't sound that long, but if you say like, you know, uh, roast venison, that's two words. <laughs> so I could describe, you know, 67 more food items <laughs> if they were only two words each. So that's a lot of food. So Bran, again, has a scene where he is the one everyone defers to. He's the Stark in Winterfell. He's sitting in the high seat. He's the de facto heir to King Rob Stark, even though no one calls him that directly. And he's drinking from his father's cup. That's another thing he notices in this chapter. He looks at the cup. He's thinking about it. And it's another time where he's getting the experience a king needs on the sly. It's more of the, shall we say, the education of King Bran, as well as the feeding of King Bran and perhaps the drinking of King Bran. It's notable in this chapter, something I probably didn't give enough credit to in prior rereads, that he's a little tipsy in this one, maybe even more than a little tipsy. And that reminds me of John's first chapter when he was kind of drunk. Um, because that, that affects your state of mind. That affects how you think. That affects what you do. That affects, like, it can, it can be depressing. When you drink and you're in a bad state of mind, some people drink to escape, but sometimes it can make it worse. You can... I'm saddened by Bran in general, but the idea of little eight-year-old Bran drunk, it's very sad, yeah. actually. And the idea, it's not like explicit that he's drunk, but it says he takes a swig of wine and realizes it's stronger than he's used to. His head is swimming before the cup gets back down to the table. Like, think about how little time you need to sip and put your cup down. You know what he's drinking? <laughs> huh? Do you know what he's drinking? Wine. Uh, some sort true of wine. wine. True wine. <laughs> Got me. <laughs> yes, that is true wine. Because <laughs> it's uh, it's uncut. Like, that's he says it's stronger than he's used to. And, and you know, in medieval times, wine is very frequently cut with water. Yes. And so this is probably less cut. So that is true wine. There's less cutting to it. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Um, so that's really, really interesting. And we get this montage. It's another one of these montages that really only happen in Brand's chapters where he just looks at lar- a large group of people and sees all this detail, taking note of individuals and groups, patterns, facial expressions, body language, just lots of detail. And this is, like I said, this has been happening since his second chapter in A Game of Thrones. Like, his first chapter is the execution of the of Garrod, and it's a little different, but uh, they're introducing other things. But basically, since his first chapter, where he, or his second chapter, where he's climbing the walls and looking down on different groups of people throughout the yard, like people at the well and people doing armoring, and he's thinking about the crows. So, it's all that. And But while he's looking out over the crowd and maybe it's because of the wine, the true wine relaxing him and and calming him a little bit. He seems to slip into like a waking wolf dream for just a few moments. Quote, 
Bran itched under his gray and white woolens, and suddenly he wished he were anywhere but here. It is cool in the godswood now. Steam is rising off the hot pools, and the red leaves of the werewood are rustling. The smells are richer than here, and before long the moon will rise and my brother will sing to it. Bran, Sir Roderick said, we do not eat. The waking dream had been so vivid. For a moment, Bran had not known where he was. Mm, yeah. Roderick again says that Bran will make a fine Lord of Winterfell. <laughs> the same thing that Bran said, no, I won't, to his last chapter. Again, but he could, but he's not saying anything about king. <laughs> no one said he won't make a fine king of Winterfell or king of the North, which is what Roderick should be saying. That is the, the, the you know, the, the way the, the hierarchy plays out there, you know, if, if Rob doesn't have his own kids. And Bran is correct with how things are going to play out here, quote. Bran had not wanted the phrase at the high table, but the maester reminded him that they would soon be kin. Ro Rob was to marry one of their aunts and Arya one of their uncles. She never will, Bran said, not Arya. <laughs> Indeed, she does not ever marry a fray. And, well, frankly, Rob doesn't marry a fray either. So, <laughs> <laughs> and the reeds arrive. Perfect timing for the reeds to arrive. I mean, for them, like they arrive during the feast. Yeah, it's the best time to arrive. Like, yeah, right during the party. Uh, and we get another proxy King Bran moment. They have to, since there's no, they can't kneel to Rob, they have to kneel to Bran. And while looking at him, they say, quote, My lords of Stark, the girl said, the years have passed in their hundreds and their thousands since my folk first swore their fealty to the king in the north. My lord father has sent us here to say the words again for all our people. And Bran answers, he referred to himself in, in the formal Brandon Stark, which of course thinking about King Brandon and all that is like, yeah. And they, they call up the, the reference to the king in the north and uh, how they've been sworn to the for hundreds of thousands of years, it says, which we know was a King uh, Rickard, I believe it was, who first conquered the Neck and married uh, the Marsh King's daughter. We don't know how long ago that was, but uh, it's been a long time. And so we have Bran's full squad. They haven't formed into a squad yet, but everyone's there. You got uh, Osha and uh, Rickon and Nira and Bran and Hodor, and of course the Direwolves. Uh, so a little bit of descriptions, right? Again, we want to keep track of what people look like. Book and show Mira aren't too far apart, really. Uh, Book Mira's hair is longer. Um, but um, yeah, Ellie Kendrick, you know, she's around the same size. Uh, maybe. If not the same age, because yeah. it's another case. I mean, it is another case where the actress and the actor are actually far older than they're young looking. That's true. Yeah. Ellie Kendrick uh, looks younger than she yeah, is. Yeah, she looks much younger than she is. And, but let me say uh jojen he looks much younger than he is oh, that yeah. kid has been like acting as a young young person for decades it feels yeah. like <laughs> i forget his name but uh yeah he was in he was in one of the star wars movies too like yeah a brief role. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thomas brody saying thomas brody Sanctor. yeah he's like but, 20 something and when he's when he's jojen yeah now he's 29 by now but yeah he just looks like a child he anyway does, so um that's misleading but we so we don't know what age mira and jojen are actually playing in the show right uh, Book Jojen wears all green, however, and has green eyes, which, of course, Thomas Brody Stanger neither wears green nor has green eyes. Uh, but more interesting than their appearance, this is that's just to keep things straight, but if we're getting into the, the real details, the more important details, their oath is really interesting. I swear it by earth and water, said the boy in green. I swear it by bronze and iron, his sister said. 
We swear it by ice and fire they finish together. It's an ancient, simple oath that says a lot. Ice and fire, they say. Damn right. And it's a perfect oath for a king, too. It's very uh, honorable. It's very, like, fully submitting, you know, swearing by all these sacred sort of elements. But the fact that they say ice and fire, that's the first time that's basically said at all. Uh, The next time we see that line or anything like it, is the cup of fire and the cup of ice in the House of the Undying. And then Rhaegar in The Storm of Swords is going to say, his is the song of ice and fire when Danny has that vision and she sees Rhaegar holding up newborn baby Aegon with Elia. Uh, hat tip to Nina and Laura Brandos for uh, looking up those next couple examples of when the phrase ice and fire is used. So, yeah, they're already, they're kind of, <laughs> Mira and Jojen are kind of ahead of the game here swearing to the future king <laughs> like well in advance of when he's be- actually going to be king uh so the reads interestingly bran doesn't stay at the feast very long goes back uh to go to sleep and uh, because bran is still having his visions he sees that the reeds go to visit the direwolves like pretty quickly like it doesn't sound like they stayed at the feast very long and uh something kind of odd happens here he won't hurt me this is not the day i die the male walked toward them unafraid and reached out for his muzzle, a touch as light as a summer breeze. Yet at the brush of those fingers, the wood dissolved and the very ground turned to smoke beneath his feet and swirled away laughing. And then he was spinning and falling, falling, falling. But this, yeah, there's a lot of questions about that. One, uh, I think it was Stefan B from Flick asked if this is like, can Jojen, is Jojen's touch enough to knock Bran out of the warging? Uh, Jojen's that good drug (laughs) yeah that's what Bran needs to fall asleep properly is Jojen (laughs) seems counterintuitive but there we go Uh, or if this is just him still thinking about Jamie because the falling 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 thing is had just had been you know raised to prior and so maybe he's thinking about that it's not clear Uh, so hmm. but it is unusual and uh, this seems to trigger more feelings or sensations like, you know, like, his, his, like, again, his fall from the tower. But I really don't have a good answer for why the Green Dreamer's touch would, would have this effect. So I don't know. I really, I, I wish I had an answer, but we'll have to, hopefully we'll learn more about how the dire wolves work and all that. Maybe we'll have an answer later. Have we seen um, other people touch Bran when he was feeling like this much? I don't think so. Because I'm curious if it was a specific Jojen thing or uh, just people touching him in his body, bringing him out of things. Mm, good question. Well, something to keep an eye on for the future. Yeah. I don't have an answer right now. Uh, so Jojen can also apparently feel the wolves and Mira can't. Like he has this sense of them. He knows that Shaggy is full of fear and rage, which is completely accurate. That's how we know he's, he's, he's uh, legit with his uh, detection skills here. And he describes Summer as stronger than he knows, which also seems to be true. Um, so how did they find out about this? I mean, surely word has spread all over the North, the Starks have direwolves. I mean, that's, that's going to be the stuff of rumor in a lot of places. Like, this is not something that's going to be kept on the down low. But still, how does the Rees get news? Like, the neck, how, do, how does news come in and out of the neck, right? They, they, don't have, uh, they don't have ravens, as we're told. The castle moves. You know, their people don't trade with the real world nearly as much the real world the rest of the world is what i meant to say so it's interesting they're just not uh they're not as part of the seven kingdoms they're kind of in their own little microcosm so you wonder like how this information gets to them oh and maybe there's a supernatural element to it maybe it's just simple as jojen's green dreams it could be that 
Uh, certainly the dreaming is a part of the reason why they're even there in the first place. Howland Reed sends them because he hears about Bran's dreams. Mm. Uh, and the presence of the Reeds, speaking of Howland Reed, triggers a very important memory in Bran as he's going to bed. Quote. The finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane, who fought with a blade called Dawn, forged from the heart of a fallen star. They called him the Sword of the Morning, and he would have killed me but for Howland Reed. Father had said had gotten sad then, and he would say no more. Bran wished he had asked him what he meant. He went to sleep with his head full of knights in gleaming armor, fighting with swords that shone like starfire. But when the dream came, he was in the god's wood again. Mm. So in part, this is George R. R. Martin reminding the reader of this very important plot connection to A Game of Thrones and Ned's dream, saying, oh yeah, these are the kids of the only survivor of Ned's party who fought Sir Arthur, Sir Gerald Hightower, aka the White Bull, and Sir Oswald went at the Tower of Joy. Now, Consider how I worded that. I said the only survivor of the people who fought, right? There's other people who probably were at the Tower of Joy that weren't involved with the fighting who may be able to give us some information on what happened there. But the only, you know, like Willa, for example, or Wyla, whoever you say her name. But the only one we know for sure was there and a witness is Howland Reed and he is alive. So this is George connecting those plot threads because we haven't heard about Sir Arthur. We haven't heard about the Tower of Joy. We haven't even heard Lyanna's name in a while. So this is all coming back like, oh, yeah. And in the ensuing meantime, George has slyly added quite a bit more detail about the Tower of Joy in terms of some of these other people that were involved. The Wents have been mentioned a lot since uh, Ned's fever dream and the High Towers as well, especially Jorah bringing up both of those houses during uh, his Laness story, for example. Uh, and the Wentz we talked about a lot in Arya and Catelyn and Tyria's chapters at the least. So since all that's happened, we have a lot more detail, even though we still don't have answers, we have a lot more detail and we have a lot more understanding. So the Reed's arrival is obviously super important for Bran's arc. It's like, oh, all the squad's here. Pretty soon we're going to take off and head north. Um, but even though they're going farther, even though they're going in the opposite direction of the Tower of Joy, the Tower of Joy plotline is part of Bran's arc as much as it is anyone else's uh, since, since Ned's gone. So that's where we're going to see a lot of it. And of course, we all have been thinking for a long time that maybe Bran's going to look through the Weirwood and see the Tower of Joy story just like the TV did. Well, the story itself will be a little different. I mean, the mechanism will be similar and that that's how we learn the truth. But it's not a sure thing because we also have Howland Reed and these other, and maybe Willa and other people to tell us about it rather than giving it to us in a vision. Joe points out something I'd never really thought about. Mira and Jojen went to Winterfell on their own. They just, yeah, two young people just traveling there by themselves. I'd never thought about that. It's a great point. Like everybody else comes in like a group. Like even Danella Hornwood has six guards. It's not many. It's not enough to stop the Boltons later, but it's something. Mira and Jojen totally traveling solo. And that's just, that's uh, shows how capable they are and how useful uh, they're going to be when they're all out in the wild. Uh, so like I, like I said, we get introduced to a lot of characters who are kind of what Joe calls the Winterfell B team, Poxy, Tim, Hayhead, all these other guys. We know these aren't the cream of the crop because they would have been, they would have gone south with Ned and or Rob. 
Um, and all these characters, we don't have a lot to say about them because they're all just going to get killed by uh, by Ramsey and or Theon. So, in light of that, this is basically the last really good time that we see in the North. Bran's going to have a couple of chapters before he flees, before Theon comes to get him and Winterfell. But right after this feast ends, Danella is captured. Half the North starts fighting over that. Then Theon and the Boltons and Winter all just going to come. So it's really going to get ugly. And uh, yeah, what are you going to (laughs) do? A couple of questions and miscellaneous thoughts. Will Moss, maybe they think Bran will be Lord of Winterfell because Rob and his heirs will make a seat somewhere else because it would seem a bit weird to me to make a statement that actually predicts that Rob will die. Yeah, that, that's possible. Maybe they think Rob would set his seat somewhere else, but that seems odd, too. Like, where? Like, Riverland? Yeah, I don't know another good spot, but maybe they think because he has the Riverlands that he would want to be more central yeah. to it all, but there's not really a good spot, and he's, like he's just going to take someone's spot. Yeah, the central spot is the Neck, which you can't build a castle there, really. No. <laughs> and it's not a good place to rule from because it's yeah. kind of out of the way to reach. Yeah, it's not like he's going to take White Harbor, which, like, I, that's yeah. the next place I would think of. Yeah. Besides those, I would think of like obviously River Run, White Harbor. Building like, a new castle is, yeah. you know, that's a possibility. It's a possibility, but, but it seems unlikely. weird for them to predict that as well. Yeah, I, I agree. That. And I, I like, it's hard for me to picture a, the Stark, the king, the king in the north, deciding not to rule from the ancient from Winterfell, seat. From right? Winterfell. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, Will, Will brings up a good point, though, which is that this, any way you look at it, the language is a little off, mm-hmm. which I think is just gets us back to the original mystery, which is it's all, he's just being sneaky about King Bran. He doesn't want to be too overt with that. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's our answer. At least I don't have a better answer. I also want to uh, bring this up. Um, Scott Wartman says, Bran touches John in a dream later. Yeah. Inside the dream. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Dream, uh, we think Bra- blood Raven is sort of overseeing those dreams in that spot, but we'll talk about that more when we get to it. That's I think John seven in the Clash of Kings. So we have a while mm-hmm. before we get to that one. Tree Girl wonders about the children of the forest and read genetics, uh, whether there's a connection. I recall on Westeros.org, the first time anyone ever brought that idea up, and it was a new poster, someone from South America who was like in their post with a little shy, talking about, I'm a little shy making this post, blah, 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 because, you know, everybody here seems to know so much. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, say something that maybe people think was is stupid. And he posted this long, thorough theory about connections, like appear, uh, appearance connections between the children of the forest and the Krannic men and how they might be like a, a hybrid. And people loved the post, including me. And I was like, yeah, that's a great theory. So Trigger Girl is, is, is bringing that, is rehashing that. And it's a great thought. It's a, I'm not, you know, uh, it's a really cool idea. And uh, it's, it touches on a lot of supernatural aspects, like the idea that the, the Stark blood started to gain uh, that magical aspect to it after King Rickard conquered the neck and married the Marsh King's daughter. Maybe that's like the Marsh King's daughter is where some of that got involved in their bloodline. If you go back even farther, you have the Warg King that the Starks also defeated and he, his children were uh, divvied out. Uh, his daughters were kind of divvied out. So the bloodlines also come there. Uh, but yeah, I definitely think there's a strong bit of evidence for the Children of the Forest and the Kranigmen having a, a, some sort of ancient connection through blood that's maybe a magical connection, maybe kind of like how the Targaryens have some dragon blood in them, which probably isn't a matter of them actually, you know, having sexual intercourse and having, you know, dragons with people. 
But on the other hand, a child of the forest maybe could have relations with a human. That's not as certain. At least they kind of have the same body parts. <laughs> I mean, it obviously can't help but think of um, the Ebenese. Yeah, yeah, good point. They're also kind of like a different species. Yeah, so. they're, yeah, they're. It's hard for them to breed with them. It's kind of like, uh, you know, horses and donkeys or yeah, whatever. mule. Yeah, all that. You're right. That's a good. Mules. Actually, a very good parallel. So yeah, I'm not sure uh, where what the, where we can't get too much detail there, but the but the the like I connecting see, points are very strong. Yeah, I could see a female child of the forest being unable to have a human baby, whereas a human woman could have a child of the forest baby. Yeah, maybe that Something kind like of that. thing. Anyways, Nina points out that there's uh, this this feast has some parallels to the uh, the uh, the tournament in Harrenhal, which was kind of the last big party before the rebellion which is what's happening here, as other people will point out, that this is like Joe Buckley pointed out, that this is kind of the last bit of goodness before everything really goes to hell, uh, even down to the unexpected Reed aspect of these two stories, like the Reeds show up here and Helen Reed shows up at the Tournament of Harrenhal kind of unexpectedly and uh, his appearance uh, causes things to happen. So that's neat. That's a really good one. I had not caught that parallel. Stefan uh, points out that Bran's loneliness is very similar to John's. Uh, especially not John's right now, John's later when John is in charge, when John is Lord Commander and how he doesn't feel like he has a lot of people he can confide in. He doesn't really get along with the other officers. He kind of keeps his own counsel, which is a problem because he's not, he hasn't communicated a lot of his uh, plans and his thoughts to his officers. Um, that's not a problem for Bran, but it's a similar isolation at the top. Like they don't feel like they have people they can trust. They don't have like certain close people. But John has a few friends that he has that he can trust and here we have Bran getting his people that he can trust. He's getting, you know, his first real friends that uh, are going to be around him. I like Bran throwing a little shade here, a little humor. Quote, Sir Roderick reminded him to send something to his foster brothers. <clears throat> so he sent little Walder some boiled beets and big Walder the buttered turnip. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tom and Bran would have got, remember back when uh, Ned says that, uh, Tom, he wants to bring Bran to King's Landing because he thinks that Bran's sweetness could help, like, bridge the gap between the Lannister yeah. kids. And it's like, yeah, Bran hated, uh, Tommen hated Beats, too. <laughs> <laughs> so Tommen wanted to outlaw Beats. <laughs> so I think Bran and Tom would have gotten along. Yeah. Too bad. They never get that chance. Uh, and Rickon, a little more, just just a little more hint of just how wild Rickon is. It's it's hard to connect this to Ares, but I think of Ares because Rickon says he won't let anyone cut his hair and bit the last person who tried. He bit a girl that tried to cut his hair. It's like Ares wouldn't let people cut his hair or his nails either. It's for different reasons, and I don't really think that's a parallel, but I couldn't help but think of it. Mostly it's just that Rickon is wild and getting wilder because he doesn't have parenting, and the support network he grew up with is, is dramatically different. But uh, more on Rickon later. Also, to do with Rickon, by the way, I mean, we talk a lot about the impact that Rickon makes on Shaggy Dog. Yeah, you know, Heather, but also yeah. like you know, Rickon's so tiny, so small. I mean, his mind has to be way more influenced by his wolf than the other people would be. That's so, a if a wolf point. is like kind of like already wild, of course, Rickon's going to be influenced. Yeah, it's not in a, it doesn't have like an adult or even or even like a an eight-year-old's perspective on yeah. what's normal and what isn't yeah exactly so he could just 
Yeah, it goes both ways. I think they feed into each other. Basically. It's not going to seem as strange to a to a four year old that this is happening because it's like, well, this is how the world yeah, works. Like he doesn't know he doesn't know how things work. This is yeah. just, just things are happening. And if that's how it works, why bring it up to someone? Yeah, yeah, just just kind of natural to him. And and how he could he, he express it as a four year old, he doesn't have the words to like express himself properly. Mm-hmm. And of course, being all angry and, and frightened and, and sad doesn't help either. All right. Well, that is it for. Brand three, um, let's let's a real brief description of what's coming up next. Some thanks, and then we're done. Uh, Catlin two next week. The gang fights for rainbow cloaks, aka the one where Brienne wins. John three, the one where there aren't any boys, aka the gang meets Craster and Gilly. Theon two, Theon tries to bang his sister, aka the gang starts a war. Tyrion six, the gang hears Stannis is fighting Renly. AKA the one where Shaga's a barber. <laughs> Arya six, the gang gets tickled. AKA the one where Arya starts her list. Daenerys two, the gang finally learns Robert is dead. AKA the one where they explore Karth. If anyone's going to ball at the wall in Nashville next week, we will see you there. If you don't have a ticket yet, it's this weekend. This yeah, it's Saturday. This coming weekend, this Saturday, October 26th. Uh, Yeah, if you don't have a ticket, we do have a couple of extras. Message us. Maybe we'll hook you up. So thank you on behalf of myself and Ashea. Thank you to all the live attendees, everyone who supports us on Patreon, Joe Buckley, Michael Klarfeld, our wonderful History of Westeros mods, Nina, uh, all of the commenters and members of the Facebook group who have added great thoughts to this to make this episode richer and more thorough. Same with... Same goes for everyone who's on uh, participating on Flick, which the link to join either of these groups is below. I've been talking about uh, unleashing uh, uh, more methods for us to uh, talk about this. Slack and Discord are on their way, but uh, not yet. We've been a little too busy with these huge lists of early chapters. We've done three three-hour episodes in a row, and so once we get back to more two-hour length episodes, which is coming because Clad these chapters shorten a little bit later then we'll uh, start biting off new things like that. But we don't want to do too much at once. So uh, anyone else who shared, uh, anyone else who spreads this news to their friends, anyone who is reading along, we thank you as well. We are so happy to be in this community and so thankful to be able to do this every week. It's super fun. I am uh, so glad to be doing it with y'all. I'd be glad to be doing it by myself, but it's so much better to be doing it with y'all. So hey, right on. All right, that's it. Until next time, we will see you then. And you know what to do. Valar Reedus.